in a podcast where two people talk to one other person about navigating and dominating the legal high industry, the relationship between substance and discrimination, the unexpected detriments of being rich and famous, legal policy, and rock music as equal forms of artistic expression. On today's episode, we have Matt Bowden, the podcast that you have all been waiting for. The podcast that we've been waiting for. That's true. We are so excited to have Matt on the show today. He is an incredible guest. He's, He's every bit as delightful and fascinating as one would imagine. Um, for those of you who don't know Matt Bowden, well, you're going to get to stay tuned, listen to this podcast, but also feel free to, you know, whip out the old Googs, take a, take a Google, take a gander at the Googs. Um, we first found out about Matt um, a couple years ago. Trevor watched a Vice documentary on him, and we've had many conversations about him since. And then we ended up meeting him at a festival in uh, Chiang Mai a couple months ago and had the wonderful opportunity to interview him a little while later. And, yeah, it's just it's so awesome. It's so exciting. Yes, it seems really faded. I, I couldn't believe that the gentleman that we wound up setting our camp up next to through the first five minutes of talking to him, I was like, wait a minute. You're that Matt Bowden? <laughs> yeah. Did you by any chance do a Vice episode? <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I believe I did that one before. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Like I, I've quoted you on many an occasion. Uh, he put into words theories and practice, put into words and practice theories that I had been toying with in my head. And then I watched this Vice documentary and it just validated all of these. Like what kind of theories? Um, about the uselessness and damage that the war on drugs was causing and alternative methods of tackling drug problems worldwide and within our own country. Um, it definitely validated some of my more, at the time at least, leftist ideas of what drug policy should be. Um, so for those of you who don't know right now, uh, Matt pioneered the legal highs industry um, in New Zealand and set the precedent for the entire world. Um, yeah, so all been, those, all the K2, all those things came. Legal cannabinoids, uh, BZP and other party, legal party drugs, aka social tonics. Um, were all invented by matt he really pioneered the industry and um pioneered the changing of drug policy that has set the precedent uh going forward it's pretty pretty fucking awesome (laughs) yes he successfully lobbied new zealand's parliament to institute unprecedented drug policy in the form of creating a whole other categorization of substances for consumption other than just food and that is called social tonic and he talks all about the details of that labeling process in this episode um and the episode opens with a really interesting point about how in societies what western societies but really societies all over the world 
how certain drugs or whatever what's like the blanket term like things in things that change your state of consciousness that certain ones are allowed and promoted and a part of everyday life and culture and other ones are so frowned upon and we get into that that's really historically rooted in racism and genetic discrimination and that is just a mind-bending perspective on the whole thing there are several mind-bending perspectives definitely in this podcast. Uh, so now Matt's life is all about being a rock star. And he gets into how he feels like being a musician and, and formerly creating drug policy are equal forms of artistic expression. And that's how like, he's always viewed himself as an artist. And when he was doing this policy and coming up with these chemical derivatives that it was all just um, an art form. And that was really interesting. But he's he's now a rock star. He, perf- he performs under the name of Starboy, uh, Interdimensional Traveler. Um, and we're going to sample a couple of his songs throughout this episode. But you should definitely check him out on Spotify, Starboy. Really cool. And he now is performing um at festivals i know he we talked a bit off when we weren't recording about how he's planning to start doing festivals in europe um with what he what's called labyrinth circus and we also that's labyrinthcircus.com and that's a whole thing where he's now saying he wants to put on shows that are so cool and trippy that you don't need to be taking substances in order to really get high off the experience that that the the theatrics of and the whole experience will be so immersive and and perspective changing that that's yeah that's the, that's the kind of music and performance he's up to these days yes. he's a he's a, a man of many faces and all of which is just as equally amazing as the last he's a father to two wonderful kids a wonderful musician and all around these one of the largest human. international drug dealers in the world <laughs> <laughs> details details you know well, the the typical business card you know yeah yes so this really is a fascinating podcast and i'm sure that you will enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it definitely so please share <laughs> Yes. And fucking shop with us on Amazon. Yes. Yes. Head over to our website. Hit that Amazon uh, icon up there in the top right uh, while you're checking out our links to all of Matt's websites. And shop with us on Amazon. Doesn't cost you a thing, as always. And share the podcast. That would be really appreciated. Hit that share button. Share it on Facebook. Share it on Instagram. Share it on Email. email share it with your mouth share it should bake a cake and say you should check out the occasionally interesting podcast written in icing on that cake write it on a billboard write it on a balloon send that balloon flying put it put a message in a bottle and let that bottle wash up on a beach maybe 20 bottles if i found a bottle on a beach and it had a podcast in it i would absolutely have to listen to well, that Well, now podcast. we know what our next marketing plan is. That's genius. <laughs> Wonderful we, idea. We have a bunch of uh, soda water bottles that need to be upcycled, so... <laughs>
Next time we go to the beach. <laughs> what a wonderful idea. Thanks. Five stars. That's why you're such an amazing marketing director. Thank you, baby. You're welcome. No bread updates this week. But we did get tattoos today. We did. Also head over to that website where that Amazon link lives to see our tattoos. See the pictures of our tattoos. We couldn't, we're, we're heading to the States for a bit and we're going to do a bunch of really cool podcast interviews because it's so easy to find people who speak English in the States. It's, it's ridiculously easy. Yeah. Like most of you do. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, so we're going to be doing a bunch of really cool interviews while we're there. Um, but yeah, we couldn't leave Thailand before getting tattoos. It's mandatory. Yes, in case you've never been to Thailand, it, it is... It's mostly 7-Elevens and tattoo shops. That's at least 70% of the real estate. <laughs> it's true. And it's mandatory that you have to get one. Yeah, you're not allowed to leave the country without a tattoo. They, they check, check you at immigration. <gasps> Didn't we say there was something else that we wanted to talk about? Not about this, not about this episode in particular. Oh, Game of Thrones! Oh, yes. Game of Thrones has started this week. We have not watched it, so do not message us with any spoilers. <laughs> but do shop with us on Amazon yes. for your Game of Thrones related needs. Yeah, you need uh, food and drinks? For, do they sell it? I get, they probably have. I'm stuff. sure there's everything Game of Thrones branded. Um, get your Game of Thrones merchandise on Amazon through our Amazon link. We're like, quite excited. Is that a Game of Thrones accent? Jen, yes, it is. <laughs> it's very it's, good. So, you know, it's a bit, bit Kiwi, bit British, you know, <laughs> a little bit of everything going on in there. That ain't really big. You sound like you're from Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, Jen just started watching. We are in the beginning of season four as, as this recording is being recorded. <laughs> um, so we're excited that she gets to catch up and then we get to catch up. So happy Game of thrones to everybody. Until you've listened to this podcast, you know nothing, Jon Snow. But do stay tuned because we do have some wonderful podcast guests coming up pretty soon. So keep those eyes and ears peeled. Keep them peeled. Keep those fingers ready to share. Keep those uh Keep those peepers peeled. Without further ado, Matt Bowden. Occasionally interesting. They are occasionally interesting. I'm just really conscious and aware that, like, particularly like in New Zealand, it's very aware that a lot of, if you're in the media and um, people are seeing you all the time, there's a lot of young people and you end up being like a bit of a role model and people listen to your message and a lot of people saying you're promoting drug use and I'm like, well, not really. I'm just trying to promote safer policy. But for younger people, you know, what's my take on taking drugs? It's probably better not to. You know, it's probably better to leave them alone. You can attain those states without using the drugs. So that's been my message. And with putting on shows as well, we want to put on shows that are so cool. You don't need to take drugs to enjoy them. You know? hey, Matt, are we recording? Beautiful message. Yeah. Um, on okay, the... So we are recording now. That's right. really interesting okay. you say that because right before we came here... When we were preparing for this interview, this was kind of where I took the conversation and then we got into a bit of, what is it, a robust dialogue. That's what our friends taught us to call arguing. Because yeah. um, I was yeah, I was saying the same thing of, well, we were reading this one article about you where in the article they wrote it as 
um, you uh, that all these people in the rave scene that their main objective was to stay up all night dancing. And I was like, that's really interesting. I want to look at the underlying motives there. It's really about wanting to have connection with people and wanting to be able to allow yourself to connect with other people. And how, how can we create, what did I say? Like spaces, uh, events, things like that, where drugs aren't needed. And we were talking about, you know, for example, um, there's a jungle party in Pi this weekend that we want to go to. We don't drink alcohol. Um, and it's very draining to be around really drunk people. So we're kind of like, it's hard. Like we want to, we want to have these social events, be at these social events, but to. It seems exhausting to go to without some type of social lubricant. Yeah, that's right. And so we had introduced to us maybe, I don't know, 50 years ago, the idea that it was somehow a deviant behavior or a moral transgression to consume something to change the way that you feel. That was really drummed into us, unless it was one of the socially acceptable drugs. Coffee. Coffee, alcohol or tobacco, because those guys were lobbying hard. Um, Even though those are, well, coffee excluded, uh, alcohol and tobacco are like the leading killers yeah, they seem dangerous cigarettes and and alcohol yeah, yeah for sure and so obviously there's something wrong there but if we just get behind that for a minute and say where is that idea coming from that certain cultural practices are okay and other cultural practices are not okay you've got europeans who've um we've been drinking alcohol for so many generations that our bodies have developed high levels of dehydrogenase the enzyme that breaks down alcohol uh whereas maybe um an Aboriginal Australian or um, Native American um, or even someone from a lot of people in China, they don't, they haven't been drinking alcohol for generations. They don't have high levels of dehydrogenase. If they drink that thing, it's really kind of toxic mm-hmm. to them. And so then you end up with laws that are not just culturally insensitive but are actually genetically discriminatory to say it's okay to have alcohol but it's not okay to have cannabis or whatever it is. And if you've got you know, if you've got laws which are genetically discriminatory, they're racially, it's racial discrimination, it's a bias which is totally unacceptable, it's not um, congruent with basic human rights. Um, so those things need to be overturned, they need to be challenged, and those ideas need to be thrown out. The idea that, you know, white man's food is like, is, is best for everybody, it's, hmm. it's got to go. It's really interesting. I never thought of it um, from that perspective of a racially sort of, I, I mean, I see, like reading some of the dialogue in the United States that was going on to like uh, make opium illegal was, uh, I mean, it was like written in papers by like by our by our Senate that it was like it lures the white woman into the opium dens. And I'm not necessarily condoning opium use, but just the way that you can see how it went about becoming illegal is very interesting. It was a fear of interbreeding. It yeah. was a fear that the white bloodline may converge with yellow or black mm-hmm. and so those sorts of ideas those fears of a, of someone who's got a different colored skin um maybe we could lose them moving forwards you know and, and look if that's what the roots of the tree are of, of prohibition then it's no surprise that the fruits are so rotten so you think that prohibition generally started because of a cultural clash and a way to sort of demonize a different culture yeah so as 
um, as colonists moved around the planet and sought to um, crush and um, dominate uh, Aboriginal peoples, they um, they wanted to remove the identity, cultural identity, and they wanted to. And particularly, there's, there were fears that if um, if the um, the people being colonised had their own culture and had their own religion, um, then they might not want to submit to um, a new government and a new religion. And so other cultural or spiritual practices were, were taboo. Mm-hmm. These guys are reading this cactus, talking to spirits. We don't understand it, so best reaction is fear. Obviously, they're doing something evil. It's evil spirits. It's witchcraft. Let's, um, let's burn them and make that uh, taboo and illegal and... Um, maybe it's time to review all those sorts of ideas, you know. One of the things that we've spoken a lot about is uh, the term drug, how we, we don't really like the idea of categorizing all intoxicants an, as... An all-encompassing word that has so much stigma and no uh, individualism, no no evaluation on a case-by-case basis, just lumping in the worst things with the best things. Yeah. And again, the, the idea of drugs, it was like it was a medicine. And we have, like in New Zealand, our law is called misuse of drugs. So the idea is that here's a compound, um, maybe maybe um, diamorphine heroin, which was intended to be used for um, as a pharmaceutical, as a medicine. And here it's being misused. Someone's using it to, to dull a different kind of pain. And they're doing it by themselves. Uh, and again, it's a it's a it's a misnomer because if you look, almost every human culture or civilization going back to the dawn of time have used tools to um, from our environment to change our state of mind and our state of being. And it's like as humans, we learn how to use tools. We find tools and use them. And and with our mind, we change gear between work mode and play mode. We change gear for when we need to sleep and we change gear for socialize. There's times when we need to um, sort of diminish our inhibitions in order to facilitate building a new relationship, which is important for the continuation of the species, obviously. And we do that using disinhibitors. And that's actually a very normal human behavior. It's normal right across all cultures, going right back to the dawn of time. It was an era um, for us to categorize this as a deviant behavior and to say well it's wrong to change the way you feel using something unless it's alcohol or tobacco uh, that's where there was some wrong thinking and and more and more i think it's uh, we're starting to realize that it's actually normal for us to um maybe use a coffee to to wake up or have a couple of beers to um to relax at the end of the day and it's actually also normal to use maybe a psychedelic mushrooms pop up once a year what a great time to um sit down and use those to put our mind into a state where we can reflect and be introspective and um, look back on the decisions we've made, reevaluate them, break out of those ingrained behavior patterns that are causing us problems and um, reinvent, reinvent ourselves and renew and move on to our next life phase. It's actually very normal to do that. Well, if you think it's primarily culture, it's a tangent. If you think it's primarily, primarily culture that sort of created this, war on drugs this global war on drugs I mean, it seems like mushrooms for one are one that appear almost globally besides like the driest deserts like antarctica and um so it seems like most cultures had a history of mushroom use but that is something that's been in most as far as i'm aware in most places a pretty high scheduled drug 
Yeah, it seems like psychedelics, there was a lot of fear of psychedelics. Um, I guess 60s and 70s, some of the LSD doses were a little high perhaps. And um, the the drugs were put out there without the um, cultural sort of risk management systems that were around them. It used to be that the drugs would be, or the, sorry, the psychoactives would be used in um, in ritual, maybe for a coming of age or, or, or something. And there's a lot of, um, normally they'd be administered by elders or people that knew what they were doing, and there'd be some sort of balance, and there'd be some su- supportive structure around the social setting in which they were used. And that was kind of stripped back. And so um, where for centuries we'd had the understanding that these are things that need to be used responsibly, we just took that away. We, we've... We've sort of, um, I guess we were kind of orphaned as a culture and that we picked up some of these practices, but we had cut ourselves off from um, the cultures where they came from. We cut ourselves off from the traditions around them. Uh, and so that's why there were problems. Okay. Do you want to read our introduction now? Or? I give it to you. Oh, shoot. It's not very long. Oh, shoot. Matt Bowden goes by many titles, Starboy, Interdimensional Traveler, Dad, and the Godfather of the Legal High. We met Matt when we were tent neighbors at Jai Tep Festival in Northern Thailand. You've heard us mention him in other podcast episodes, but rather than us tell you his story, why don't we hear it from him? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Would you mind going a little bit into the New Zealand story? The or New Zealand story. Well, okay. The whole story. The whole story. The, okay. the story of Matt. Um, and all his titles and personalities and dimensions. Where do you, where do you want me to start? Do you want my my background, or where did things start with drug policy, or background? Background. Okay, so, um, so I was born in 1971, just nine months after Jimi Hendrix died. <laughs> were you so, are you him reincarnated? Well, I'm just putting that out there. No, I just I grew up in the seventies, I guess, and um, um, my mother was a uh, music teacher, piano teacher. My dad was just getting into the idea that um, computers were going to be handy. And growing up, um, uh, my dad was a bit of a visionary in that he would bring home gadgets called acoustic couplers, where you'd get the computer and you'd hook it up with the telephone and he'd say, you know, someday we're going to use the computer and we're going to ring up over the telephone the other computers and send information around the place. And everyone was uh, like, why the hell would anybody want to have a computer in their house? And why would the computer be trying to hook up with other computers on the phone? That sounds like a dumb idea. But um, <laughs> he really pursued it. He was working at IBM. I think he was the one visionary there. He ended up being their internet services manager. And wow. he was right. It really does seem to have caught on. <laughs> um, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and so my my parents were kind of inspirational to me in music and the arts, thinking outside the square and um, not worrying too much if everybody disagrees when you've got a good idea. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, I mean we were a Catholic family. There was I think six, seven children, um, and went to a went to a Catholic boys' school. I did really well at school. I found it kind of boring, but I, I skipped a year. I started when I was four years old, and then I skipped another year in secondary school. And by the time I was like 16 years old, I was in university. Um, it was probably a dumb move doing that. Everybody else was a few years older than me. They were all adults. I was still a child. So, yeah. um, 
I lasted a couple of years there doing computer science and music and stuff, but got more interested in um, psychic phenomena and spiritual activity and um, uh, escaped the confines of the university education. Went and played guitar in a heavy metal band for a few years. And uh, yeah, that was kind of me. So where next? Um, Do you grow up in Auckland? Yeah, I grew up in Auckland. A lot of my family are from Takaka, which is like a beautiful um, hippie haven, I guess. It's over a big hill, so people that make the trek to get over the hill often don't want to turn around and go back over it to get out again. They stay there. And so there are a lot of um, beautiful kind of conscious communities, um, hippie communes and so on. And if you cruise into Takaka, uh, you'll see it's a very colorful place with, um, um, I guess it's kind of a little similar to Chiang Mai here. It's a... It's a beautiful place with beautiful people. Uh, very conscious, chilled out beings there. What do you think drew you from computer science to wanting to pursue more of spiritual. colorful pursuits? Yeah, spiritual, psychic phenomenon. I just, I just kind of had it. Felt like I was at a crossroads one day, and felt that if I was going to spend my life just working on computers with machines, that that wasn't fulfilling me on some level and there must be more i grew up as a kid just um having dreams and and a crazy imagination um just perceiving other realities and other universes and being frustrated at being stuck here in this one mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. just feeling like i'd been here maybe before or that there was more that was out there and i used to sit and try to try to practice telekinesis and telepathy for um, for hours, <laughs> I, was a, I think I might have got a few trips to the um, psychiatrist when this behavior was coming out. I, <laughs> I don't recall my, my parents having to take remedial action to try to deal with my freakiness. <laughs> mm. We were talking amongst ourselves on the ride here about um, what, why some people don't like particular hallucinogenics. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I think that it's because a lot of people, well, I, no, wait, I was, we started this because I was talking about how totally multifaceted your personality and pursuits are and admiring that you and many of my other, uh, I don't know, heroes who have any leg in the psychonaut race, I don't know, um, the, the, they're incredibly intelligent and well-rounded and have multiple pursuits and that like nobody's singular pursuit is just about psychedelics it's always like that's an aspect of a many faceted life journey and that that is really interesting to me and that yeah like the those people don't fit into the typically prescribed one box only allotted amount for society of being like you can only be this one thing um, and then we were wondering about the correlation between intelligence and a fondness for psychedelics. And I said that I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily that it's intelligence, but something that sort of coincides with intelligence, which is perspective shifting, being able to look outside yourself and imagine different possibilities or other perspectives. I think that goes hand in hand with enjoying the psychedelic experience because it sort of takes you there. And if you haven't already been there naturally – it can be quite shocking, especially when you're like, holy shit, the system that has been controlling my life this whole time, it's not really 
like doesn't really exist and shouldn't really be valid. Yeah, I think it's part of the definitive human experience is to be able to perceive things that you um, that you haven't seen. You know, just just reading Sapiens at the moment, and um, one of the key differences with humans is that um, we can talk about something that we haven't seen. We can imagine something that's not real, which is why we have. Um, he sort of theorizes that's why we have all these religions and, and things because we we have we have collective belief in things that um just kind of came out of imagination um, and I don't know some of the psychedelics are often credited with increasing imagination I'm not sure if they do some of the research is coming out with microdosing and that saying well it doesn't really increase the imagination it doesn't really stimulate the creativity which is um which is kind of interesting. Uh, I've never felt like it stimulates my creativity. It more just allows me to always have a third-person bystander perspective on the other naturally persistent creative things going on in my mind. So just being able to have another perspective within my own brain looking at what the rest of my brain is up to. But my brain is always up to those things. Now I'm just able to perceive it in a different way. Right. That's something I've found coming to live in Thailand is – um, and studying meditation and going and doing vipassana and so on is is that uh, ability to kind of disassociate yourself with all the thoughts that are happening in your mind and all the voices and ideas and to just step back and become the observer mm-hmm. uh, and just observe the thoughts and things that are happening and just gaining a lot more control emotionally and mentally when you when you take that seat back take that throne back in your mind you know um, sometimes psychedelics help people do that I don't know. But it's good. I mean, for me, my overall message with psychedelics, particularly with when young people are, are looking and listening, is that it's, I mean, these these tools, even things like ecstasy, they might be great to teach you, to remind you how to love one another again. But if you then can't access that state without the drugs, you know, have you really learned the lesson? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, we were talking about this yesterday uh, in preparation for this of me saying, you know, I don't ever feel, I've never, I've never felt a need for drugs other than coffee um but that you know we we love hiking we go on hikes all the time and saying that it's a totally magical beautiful experience to be on a hike sober connecting with myself with nature with trevor and that's like amazing and awesome and then not a superior experience just a different experience is to add mushrooms into that mix and that it's not necessarily like uh yeah that that's not superior that's not something that's needed it's just like a different a different path to appreciate things from a different perspective i think a lot of the times that it becomes a problem is when you have people who are trapped in this society that puts these sort of inorganic pressures on you to be a certain way or to fulfill a certain role type that doesn't necessarily coincide with your natural predisposition and it creates this anxious entity in you that then is like insatiable so you introduce something that makes you feel good for a, a moment and it's like you can't get enough of it and it creates an entity inside of you that's insatiable like that yeah yeah and then that's 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 where drugs get a bad rap is because you'll you'll do anything to feel that again and it, and it just pour and pour and pour into it and it doesn't ever fill up because you're not addressing the root problem what's the root problem that we're not meant to live the way that society is built you know it's we've built this intricate web of what we should be and it's not anything close to what actually brings true happiness and, and, and that that's i mean that's that's true as a general it's not true as necessarily on the individual um 
I think there's plenty of people out there that realize that, you know, connection with others is, you know, and doing what is helpful to those around you, that what, who you love is the truest way to happiness. I'm sure that exists, but as a whole, you know, we're with how much materialism we have at our fingertips, especially in the Western society, it's, it's really easy to forget that and go for the big TV or the, hmm. did you find that to be the case? So you recent, you, you became very rich. Is this correct? Would you categorize that as a correct statement? You desired statement? to become very I rich. fell into it. You, th- you told us that you had uh, yeah, I guess meditated upon it or, or somehow manifested it. I did, yeah. I did make a conscious um, test or a trial. I had a, a close friend when we, were, um, when we were selling party pills in New Zealand. I'd kind of developed these things as a concept. I guess I had... Um, um, need to backtrack a little bit in the story mm-hmm. i guess how do I do this? we left this off with you in uh university if we're going chronologically you left university and joined a rock band and uh, then... yeah a theatrical heavy metal band oh. uh, which is where that all started and had like a spiritual awakening and a realization there was something else out there i was part of some christian movements for a while um well, I just had I just locked into the um, the almost psychic side, the prophetic side of listening and hearing, being able to look at someone, have a, a wave of empathy come over you, and be able to just access somehow from the quantum field or from uh, what they're broadcasting or from the uh, the archetypal consciousness itself, information about that person, where they'd come from, where they were going, what was happening in their life and why, and just to suddenly have a whole bunch of knowledge about someone and be able to share it with them, to be able to look back and remember their memories that they lost or pinpoint events. And mm-hmm. um, I just focused on doing that stuff and healing as well and found that I had I had a gift. It was really easy for me to access that kind of thing. Um, so you could... It's probably better if I don't focus on that too much. It does sound a little freaky. But mm-hmm. um, if you've got a real gift like that, often other people around you will resent you. And I thought, well, why can't everybody do this? And then when I started studying um, shamanism and so on, you know, I had a, I had was a lot of friends around me were going nightclubbing, taking a lot of drugs. And someone walked into my office one day. I was working at a car magazine um, and said, hey, I've got these pills. Do you want to help me market them? They're a safer alternative to... Um, to party drugs and they were herbal things with um, um, natural ephedra and lysergic acid amides in them and so on we looked at them and just thought well you know maybe these are a safer alternative because some of the street drugs at the time were causing real problems and when I started researching I realized that I sort of discovered shamanism and realized that people used these seeds and these plants to connect spiritually um, with the divine or with the um, with the other side, with the archetypal consciousness, and um, I thought, well, you know, maybe this is a maybe this is what a lot of my Western friends who are a little spiritually dull might benefit from. Um, Do you think everybody is able to tap into that ability to see somebody and who they are for their experiences, and sort of that in a way that they might not even be able to see themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think that we. You know, we look at space and time and we sort of think that we are, you know, just stuck at one point in time and it looks like it's moving linearly, but but it's not. You know, you can look backwards through time, you can look forwards through time if you if you know how to. Um, 
and you can you can read things out of other people's other people's minds or from you can connect directly with the archetypal consciousness. I mean, look at it. I mean, we're all made out of cells, right? Um, I'm thirty trillion cells that are living together in a community. I feel like I'm just one person, but I'm not. Each of these cells, they they um they eat and they live and they die and they breathe and they fight wars. They have lives, um, but I feel like I'm just one person. But each of my cells and your cells, they they came from one cell. Originally, there was just one cell we all came from, and so it is. And there's, a, there's something else inside of us as well, like a flame, that flame of life, that spirit, whatever it is. All those flames were lit from one original flame, and so you can connect back to that. You can connect back to that original archetypal consciousness, and you can receive information. Um, you can communicate. Why not? What I find really interesting is you, know, you said you wanted to kind of shy away from this area of the discussion because it can seem a little out there yeah but what i hear is the same story of most religions just told in common vernacular like you know we all came from god we were all his child you know he's the flame that we are all lit from like and i find it very interesting that as soon as you use words that aren't you know common in, in the bible to talk with somebody that it's the same it's a very at least a very similar approach to similar concepts it people become immediately walled off and it's like you spent like if you you spend all these years going to religion going to ceremony like these ceremonies and as soon as somebody presents it just slightly different to you you want to attack them and demonize them or or you can't even hear what they're saying yeah and this is this is where the drug war came from as well right Mm -hmm. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, uh, if you would like to continue. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I found it, I mean, um, in terms of a spiritual walk, I found coming to Thailand, a Buddhist country, and just thinking, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of groups. Everyone's trying to convert each other and so on, like in Malaysia even more so and some of these other places. But I just like to just sit and listen and listen and listen and listen and try to look for commonality between the human and within the human experience and with psychedelics as well looking and thinking well shamanism you know the christian sort of outlook normally is well this is witchcraft and evil or something not really what not really what the um you know the message of the christ what they're supposed to believe interestingly is um this is dude peter after christ has come and gone and done his done his thing and peter's making rules saying oh you, you know you shouldn't be eating he's trying to get all the new people coming in to follow Jewish rule. You're not allowed to eat pork. You're not allowed to eat certain foods. And this angel comes from heaven, and it's got this big sheet sitting on the sheet of all the unclean foods. So I guess that'd be like your shellfish, your pork. I guess those mushrooms would be on there, and the bits of cardboard, I guess, sitting on there. And says, hey, it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. You can't call anything unclean anymore. The time for that's over. It's finished. And so... To look now and think, well, all things are permissible, not all things are, are profitable. It's got to be, it's got to be the um, unifying factor moving forwards. We need to leave the restrictions behind, if you like, and analyze everything fresh. Um, I like that. Everything is permissible, but not everything is profitable. Yeah. So there's no judgment or moral transgression in eating the wrong thing. Some things might not be good for you, but it's not. It's not judge or say. You guys are wrong or evil because you're eating a cactus or something, you know. So we're going to – life's supposed to be inclusive. 
which is why I think we've got so many struggles going on at the moment. In order for humans to survive and evolve, it seems like we need a lot of pressure on so we can learn to listen to each other and work together regardless of our color of our skin or our dietary preferences or whatever else. Our fears in general. Fears. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Hmm. So. Shaman. So you got into the shaman. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was fascinated by it. But then, so the next thing that happens is we're chugging along with some um, herbal dietary supplements and so on and having a passing interest in this kind of stuff. And then um, what happened was we had, uh, New Zealand has not had many ecstasy deaths. They're all, you know, I mean, in the UK, when they have an ecstasy death, there's big billboards everywhere saying, don't touch ecstasy. They're actually all paid for by the alcohol industry. Of course. Uh, they're, what they're saying is stick with our drug. Don't yeah. don't change. But in New Zealand, the third ecstasy death was um, Di Bowden. So he was like a family member. as my third cousin. I kind of sent shockwaves through the family because by this stage, we're out partying and taking on pills and so on. Was um, there more to that? cocktail was it literally just ecstasy alone that he had taken it was a classic mdma hyponatremia so too much ecstasy and too much water through lack of education and he um he what is if you if you take ecstasy then then you shouldn't drink too much water you need to take your ecstasy along with most of the stuff you read about in the mainstream media take it with a pinch of salt okay so take it with the right amounts of salts ecstasy is depleting the salts that your body has your body needs salts it needs to maintain an electrolyte balance so that it can break water down in fact otherwise uh, you get too much water build up and you can't control the water and you end up sort of drowning your brain uh, drowns so that's what a hyponatremia is too hot um, too much water no salts anymore and sort of brain melts um, and so that happened, and then shortly afterwards, I had another friend who, um, well, somebody I knew who commits suicide using a samurai sword at a party on crystal meth. He'd walked through a plate glass window and felt that he was invincible. So he came back and I told everyone, "I'm, I'm invincible, bro." He was a, um, he's actually, he'd actually was the president of the Black Power Gang. He'd, um, he'd been to jail for murder as a young guy. And was running gangsters. He's covered in tattoos and an enormous warrior type of guy. If you've seen those New Zealand movies, Once for Warriors and so far. Um, yeah, he walked through a plate glass window, thought he was invincible, told everyone I'm invincible. It didn't even hurt. And um, um, he said, No, bro, you're just high. And so he took a samurai sword, a katana off the wall, and um, turned on himself. He stabbed himself. Is it okay to talk like this? He stabbed himself yeah. 38 times through the chest and throat and was impaled on the sword um, when it jammed in the wall and um, he sort of bled to death there. This is at a party. I wasn't there. In a room full of people. Um, and so those two events really made me realize that I, I should try to do something about this. So New Zealand's a small country. I cruised down to Wellington where the politicians are hanging out and said, basically, I need to talk to whoever writes the drug laws. And they sat me down with the drug policy team, and um, I just says, sort of said, "Hey, look, I've we've lost a we're, we're a grieving family. You know, one of our kids got no dad now because um, he took too much ecstasy. And I'm just really frustrated reading about ecstasy, reading that if he'd had the right information about it, he'd probably still be alive if we were manufacturing it properly and had dosage limits and you know quality control, he'd still be alive. And then I've got this other friend also who's just done this horrible thing." 
Um, the crystal meth seems a bit out of hand. Why don't we just make some sort of why don't why are the drugs illegal? And I was told, well, um, we we tried to change and move away from prohibition, but uh, we were threatened with sort of pressure from overseas. What happened is um, USA, and I love Americans, love um, a lot of what USA stands for, but that war on drugs thing in 1967, um, there was quite a lot of pressure at United Nations for member bodies to accept an idea that we keep all these drugs illegal. And New Zealand signed on to that. And so if we try to change that, then we get you know we get pressure coming back through. Um, my understanding is that New Zealand was threatened with trade sanctions when we tried to decriminalise cannabis back in the 80s or 90s or something. And so um, I, I sort of said, well, why don't we create some new... What if we were to create some new drugs that aren't listed in the UN Charter on Psychotropic Substances? Let's do some things America doesn't know about, don't tell them about it, and then use those drugs to build a regulatory system and put some quality control um, practices in place. Um, and they said to me, well, if you do that, um, we'll kind of tell the police to leave you alone, but just don't kill anyone, you know? Sounds like a good idea. And with New Zealand, the overall drug policy is, it says that the harm, the, sorry, it says the aim of the drug law is to reduce harm to consumers. And, and there are three pillars that they say that it's that, um, in terms of strategy, one is to reduce supply, one is to reduce demand, and one is to provide treatment. Supply reduction, what they do there is just they provide budget to law enforcement and border control to reduce supply. Demand reduction, there's some a couple of ideas about education, but it also said you know, there's a call for members of the community to come forward with community projects to reduce demand. And um, education, um, there was some info out there, but it wasn't the best. Um, we were just starting to move into harm reduction education at the time in New Zealand. So I came forward and said, well, I am a member of a community. We are called the dance community, and we represent um, those humans who... Um, meet together and dance periodically um, at dance events, as we have done for many thousands of years. And we use um, things to stay awake. We don't um, relate to your idea that the things we're using are drugs and that we're misusing drugs because your pharmaceutical medicines have only been around for a short time, whereas we've been using um, things to stay awake, party, and change the way we think and feel for many thousands of years, and we're not misusing them. It's possible that there's just a, um, a gap in the technology. So we're not going to use your word drugs anymore. We're going to slide out from underneath that legislation, that misuse of drugs, and we're, uh, we're going to just use other things that we eat, to um, not for nutritional value or um, because we're sick, but this is what we normally do. It's normal for us to dance and socialize and party. And this is how we meet other people so we can mate and continue the species. And they accepted that. And um, I said, our, our strategy is that instead of trying to reduce, if you try to reduce supply without reducing demand, all that you do, it's like um, it's like trying to make a law that um, orchards are really messy and so you want to stop the apples from falling on the ground. So you have a law that says apples aren't allowed to fall out of trees anymore. They have to go up from the ground into trees. So that's stupid, right? Because... It goes against the law of gravity, and you can't make a law in Parliament that goes against a natural law. And so it is with the law of economics. You can't make a law in Parliament that goes runs contrary to laws of economics. The laws of supply and demand say if you reduce the supply for something when the demand's still high, all that happens is the value goes up and it becomes more profitable. So that's really, really stupid. That's just a law that does that will empower a black market. It will empower organized crime. So that's a dumb idea. How about instead, imagine this, imagine, um, and I've said this at select committee meetings, you know, imagine if we're all sitting here and um, 
and we're getting a little tired. And so maybe Trevor says, hey, let's have some crystal meth. Um, well, that's good. That's going to keep us awake. But, you know, crystal meth's also got this psychosis kind of thing going on. It can be real problematic. Jen says, how about instead of doing that, why don't we just have a cup of coffee? That's going to keep us awake. So what we're doing here is we're meeting that same demand. We've analyzed the consumer need as we want to stay awake. We're meeting that demand with something else, which is safer. And if she keeps her coffee at a better price and it's really comfortable to crystal meth, then people are going to use it instead. Unfortunately, coffee's not as good as crystal meth. <laughs> it doesn't really hit the same receptor sites. It doesn't provide the same reward. So why don't we instead find, look through the literature and find something else that um, meets the same consumer needs but has a far lower toxicity profile the problems with a crystal meth is that it's addictive you can't stop taking it and if you take too much you go real crazy pick up a sword and think that's a sensible move so let's find something where you don't go as crazy and it's not as addictive so we worked scoured research and worked with others and looked at what was out there and we found benzyl piperazine not the nicest drug in the whole world but something which in Research had been shown to substitute for amphetamine in addicts. They gave it to amphetamine addicts in 1973. They said, yeah, we like that. We'd take that instead of speed. In the 70s, they thought, okay, this must be taboo, evil. This drug user said they like it, so it must be bad. Let's make it illegal. I'm saying in the 21st century, let's review that thinking. We know that's wrong thinking. Let's say, well, here's a drug which has actually been it was also the active metabolite of an antidepressant. So we knew it had a history. We had an established toxicity for the thing. We knew that it wasn't addictive um, and it didn't cause um, death and an um, overdose. So we thought, well, this is, a, this is a good candidate to use to reduce demand. Let's put this on the market. Let's sell it just to drug users and see what happens. So we started making some pills. We did a bunch of trials. Um, and then put it in places where drug users went to buy their crack pipes or in nightclubs where they used to go and hang out to reduce demand and made it at a better price. What happened over the next eight and a half years is we sold 26 million pills to 400,000 consumers on 10 and a half million occasions, and nobody died. We set the pills up. We just kept watching if there was an overdose. We'd talk to the hospital. We'd check their bloods and see you know, where people were out of balance. We found we needed a different electrolyte balance in the pills. We found that... Um, at a certain level, we were able to do things and put um, compounds in the pills so that if you took more than a certain amount of pills, you get a gradual build-up of aminos that would strengthen the heart and so on. So if someone took made a suicide attempt and took 50 or 100 pills, they wouldn't die. They'd go to hospital, and they wouldn't normally um, require any kind of medical intervention. Out of like 100 cases of hospital overdoses in Auckland, I think two people got given a Valium pill, but you know everyone else just got verbal reassurance. So it kind of worked. and. Wow. When the next national drug research came out, we noticed there was a slump in the market for methamphetamine. The price was way down and there was an oversupply, which tells you that there's been a demand reduction. Everyone in the clubs would tell you that Ron was taking these pills instead. They were a little bit nicer than speed. They had a rotten come down, though, and you didn't feel like doing it again the next day. So that was seen as a benefit because um, when they did surveys, we found 98.6% of people said that they didn't feel addicted and were able to stop easily. Um, stop meth easily. No, stop, stop the BZP. Stop the BZP. Okay. People were able to substitute okay. BZP okay. for meth and were able to stop BZP easily. That's still pretty damn impressive. I mean, that's yeah, it was proof of concept. Yeah, it's just basic logic looking at the supply and demand curve and looking at a, it's better 
to reduce demand than reduced supply. Because if you reduce demand by supplying the safe alternative, suddenly you don't need to chase supply. No one wants the other shit anymore. And so you free up all those resources. You can tell the police, hey, why don't you go and police those kind of laws where an individual is hurting another individual or is damaging property or damaging another person because those are important laws to be policing, right? And let's just um, stay out of this commercial stuff of protecting the alcohol monopoly by taking the other drugs out of the market. Yeah. I would like to say, being from the States, how remarkable it sounds that you could present a logical argument to your legislature and have them be like, reasonable. That makes sense. Let's do that. That does not happen with our Congress. You can, it's, it's quite often the opposite, where you present the most illogical argument, and that seems to be what will win out over many, many good ideas. Yeah. Well, it's it's like if you're driving a uh, Fiat Bambina versus if you're driving a semi-trailer. If you need to do a little three-point turn in a corner, it's real easy. That's what New Zealand is like. Our strength is that we're small and maneuverable. We can change direction easily, uh, which is why we win yacht races and stuff a lot. Um <laughs> And so we can try new things. And so we tried a new thing and it worked. It's, um, my vision was that I kind of felt like it was my it was my call, if you like, to rewrite these laws, rewrite these drug laws, present them to my parliament and that I would get through my parliament and I would be able to have an opportunity to present to the United Nations and establish a new system, a new way of doing things. Um, that if you can change things in your backyard, then you can change things in your neighborhood. If you can change things in your neighborhood, you can change things in your suburb. If you can do that, you can do it in your city. Why not change the world? That was the idea. Mm. Beautiful. So you have this idea. It's working. You're making money. Yeah. How did that change you? Well, I didn't like the idea. I felt that if I was the guy making all the money that I – it would somehow pollute my message and people wouldn't be able to understand me. So I kind of invented the products and put them out there. I didn't patent them. And then um, I just kept the products being sold to people that were addicted to meth, mainly putting them in the clubs. But then somebody else saw what we were doing and liked the idea and copied and made another set of pills that were just a little bit stronger and a little bit cheaper. And they needed to take their market just a little bit wider and then someone else saw what he was doing and thought, well, they will make some pills that would just be a little bit stronger and a little bit cheaper. And maybe instead of four pills in the pack, we'll have 10 and then maybe we'll have 20, you know, and maybe we'll go a bit wider. And eventually you've got um, a thing called, we went to government and said, okay, we need a regulation, we need a law that says you're only allowed this many pills in the pack, they're only allowed to be this strong and they shouldn't be sold places where, uh, where children go or whatever. We just wanted them in adult areas. Um, government was slow to put those regulations in place and we had a dose escalation problem where any market left unregulated like this kind of pursues saturation and each new marketer that came in, we didn't have pharmacologists coming into the market with new ideas, we just had marketers who just knew how to put cool things on packets, make it stronger, make it cheaper, go wider. Next minute we had dose escalation so that in some in some places, pills were like 10 times as strong as they needed to be, really cheap and available over the counter to anybody and everybody, including children, with no controls whatsoever. And then they were in the corner stores next to the icebox and the chocolate bars. And that was just, it was just way too much. It was like oversaturation. And so our ideas like saying these are just for drug users, don't use this if you're on your medicines and drugs, all those kind of things went out the window. 
So um, government started looking at, okay, we need to start banning these things. There was a banning cycle. Whenever it's getting close to an election, um, the politician who wants to appear powerful um, will use a, an old strategy of just banning and, and um, being conservative, doing, making these broad conservative moves to try to attract votes and appear powerful. So that would happen every three to four years whenever there's an election. Um, during one band scare, and I wasn't making a lot of money at this stage. I had one car that worked and one that needed work, and I was renting a house and sometimes getting behind on my payments and stuff because I didn't want to be the guy making the money. I just didn't like the idea of it. Um, so I, I went to all the guys that were selling these pills and said, guys, you guys have all infringed on my intellectual property. You've all broken my copyright and just copied everything I've written and put it on your websites and your packages. Look, I'm not going to sue you. Let's work together. Um, I am going to need to instruct some lawyers and do a whole bunch of lobbying and deal with the media. So I'll talk to the media and the government. You guys are going to pay for it. And so start putting money in this fund now and I will work to keep these things legal because there's nothing else you can do. And so they all did. And sit around having these committee meetings and said, what we need to do is we need to develop some standards. So the first thing is we um, there's three pieces of legislation we bumped into, the drug legislation. So we said, well, we're not these things aren't scheduled as drugs, so we're out from under the drug legislation. Next, the food people said, well, you're not allowed to put chemicals in a food. Um, all the food guys started gearing up to shut us down. So in every little office all over New Zealand, there were hundreds of people getting ready to go and seize all the pills, pull them out of shops and tell us we'd broken food laws. So we had a bit of a case where we looked at what is food. Food is defined as things that are being eaten for nutritional value. And so we said, well, these aren't being eaten for the nutritional value. People are taking the pills because they want to change their state of mind. And they're allowed to do that. So this isn't food. And so we moved out from under the food legislation. And the food laws said that if you're making a supplement, you have to write the words dietary supplement on the label. So we invented a new word, social tonic, and we wrote that on the label instead. So it was very clearly not a dietary supplement. It was something kind of analogous to that, but different. And it was not under food legislation. It was under a new kind of category. And then maybe somebody said, well, maybe it's having a, it's, maybe it's having a pharmacological effect. It must be a medicine. So we thought, okay, we put a claim on this and we put a um, statement on this saying this is not a medicine, it's not intended to cure any disease. So it's not a drug, it's not a food, it's not a medicine, it's a new thing that we don't even have a word for. We use the word social tonic, meaning something which doesn't have a negative connotation. It's not being misused, it's something which is being used for a tonic for social occasions. And because there was no legislation for that term anywhere in the world, we created a piece of common law legislation being our... Um, our um, code of practice and we published it because where there's no law anywhere then if there is some published law somewhere that becomes you know um, world best practice and because nowhere else in the world were properly regulating recreational drugs we thought well this is now world best practice so our government needs to accept it um, and preferably gazette it and endorse it um, we went for public consultation we used the media and asked everybody these are our guidelines. We consulted with the police, with the hospitals, with the ambulance people, um, with alcohol and drug clinicians. We consulted as broadly as we could with the entire industry and the general public to develop the best regulations and guidelines that we could. Uh, we did it transparently, and then we submitted them to government and said, let's gazette these as world best practice for regulating um, a new psychoactive drug, which we we're going to call a social tonic. Um, government sat up and woke up quickly and thought, oh, shit, we have to do something here. 
And they said, well, we'll use this as a default discussion document and we'll do our own consultation and repeat the whole process. So they did that and loaded a whole lot of crap in there with penalties for people that broke laws and all this other shit. But it was better than nothing. And so that moved through and became some groundbreaking legislation, which was um, a new drug schedule. So it started with three sort of menus and the drug laws, really, the A menu, the B menu, and the C menu. A's for acid and DMT, B's for sort of ecstasy, and C's for cannabis. And we ended up with um, what we loosely called Class D, which means drugs that are not really dangerous enough to be made illegal at all. Um, that was the process we went through. Um, we kind of held the government to, they had a committee, an expert committee that was supposed to analyze the risk of new drugs and then categorize them in A, B or C. And so we showed that by any standards on the planet, if you've got a pill and you sell 26 million of them to 400,000 people and nobody dies, then the chances of dying from eating the pill are like less than 1 in 10 million or something. The chance of dying if you fly on a 747, I think, is 1 in 6 million. The chance of dying if you drive your car to work every day in Auckland traffic for a year is 1 in 10,000. The chance of dying if you go to the beach, I think, was like 1 in 7 million. So given that our drug was a whole lot safer than normal everyday human activities, um, it was found to be, you know, you could not really argue that it was very low risk and didn't require to be illegal. Otherwise, beaches need to be illegal, airplanes need to be illegal, cars need to be illegal, and so on. And because our, our, our product was quite a lot safer than most medicines out there, um, you could also argue that maybe the medicine should be made illegal first. Um, so it was all about relative levels of risk and kept reminding government that their job is to develop legislation where, which is um, uh, where the level of regulation is commensurate with the level of risk. And the you know principles of proportionality need to be observed when developing law, all this kind of thing. It's brilliant and so reasonable. It sounds great. <sighs> so what happened? It got hard to steer that committee. Most of the other guys in the industry just wanted to make money, and um, I wanted to develop really good legislation. So it seems like those things should go hand in hand. I mean, you make a quality product that people can enjoy, that is safe to use, so you're not killing the people that are using it, or you know, making them have to go into psychosis, and that. It would be in everybody's best interest to make a quality product that was safe to use and to legislate it appropriately so it was safe and you couldn't have people coming in, which is the next harder, more outrageous chemical that you know, curtail that as much as possible. Yeah, the guys, in, once people start making money, they want to stop anybody else from making that money. And so they want to control and control. And so you end up with different agendas. You know, you end up, some people want the best legislation, others just want to be in control and stop anyone else making money. And the um, commonality in industry is that they're all profit-driven. And so you need to uh, frame everything that you're doing in terms of, um, uh, you know, that your livelihood, your um, ability to continue in business is... Um, is directly correlated to your commitment to social responsibility. You know, unless you have a commitment to social responsibility, you're just in this for the short term. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's that's the point I'm sort of alluding to. Is I mean, it seems like, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that capitalism can work when those things coincide. When when companies realize not just the short term goals, but the long term profitability really comes from stability. And 
in order like that that sort of applied to this situation would be to to make a yeah. quality product that was safe i mean that's seems like in everybody's best interest like how is it just short the short run thinking of let me grab as much as i can while i can and yeah but as well as everybody it's also survival like um so government decided they wanted to lose that product um it was during an election and i think probably they had pressure from liquor industry people started selling the products um and liquor outlets i actually thought it was a good idea to sell the products in liquor outlets because um if you go to a corner store they call them dairies in New Zealand, let's say like a 7-Eleven, the staff that are working behind the counter, sometimes they're children, and um, they're going to be, if like a, you've got a 12-year-old working behind the counter and a 15-year-old from school walks in and wants to buy some cigarettes or something, um, they're going to feel, the kid's going to feel pressured and they're going to give in. Whereas at a liquor store, in our country anyway, um, if somebody sells liquor to a minor, they lose their license and the shop gets closed down. And so the culture around asking for ID and refusing to sell to children um, is very firmly established. Same with nightclubs. There's somebody normally checking your ID and your age on the door. We just didn't want children getting hold of these things. And so we thought it was good to put them in the liquor outlets. But the liquor industry noticed that it used to be on Thursdays people would get their pay packet. They'd walk into the liquor store and they'd, $100 would go into the till and they'd walk out with a case of you know, a bunch of beer and maybe some whiskey. What was happening is 50 bucks was going into the till for liquor and 50 bucks going into the till for pills and the liquor industry noticed that there was this extra 20 million bouncing back out of their till every year um, that they were missing out on they could see there was a trend that was changing that people were finding it's more economical to um, buy an affordable another affordable drug and not to require cases and cases of beer at all and they could see the writing was on the wall so we noticed there was a bit of pressure and going on um with government, particularly around election time. I didn't cotton on to how the mechanism worked just yet at that point. But um, so the party pills got banned and uh, were taken away. We developed another product using methylone and some other compounds to use as an ecstasy substitute. This time thought, okay, I don't like that real widespread thing going in all the outlets. Let's keep this kind of private. And so we made it R21. This is a product only for people that are existing drug users. People were complaining and saying these legal highs are like a gateway onto drugs. And I really hated the idea of them being in, all the, in every outlet. So uh, we would have a private club. People would need to come directly to us. We didn't sell through retailers. Need to watch a short DVD that explained the effects of the drug, how to use it safely. And then we monitored every single person's usage. So if someone was buying more than they should, we'd track those high users and get alongside them with a, a counsellor and say, hey, Trevor, you're buying more pills than anybody else in town. What's happening, man? Have you just had a breakup with Jen? Is that what's happened? Or has your grandmother just passed away? Or have you lost your job? Why are you needing to take so many pills? Because those issues in life... Taking the pills is not going to fix them. There's better ways to deal with that stuff, you know. And that's what we found is that high users, there was usually some other pattern or something else that was triggering them, and we were able to take them aside and talk to them and um, like an early intervention to sort of educate. And that worked really, really well. We thought, okay, this is an ideal model. This is what we need to do. We need to have clinics around the country where you form a relationship with someone who's skilled in recognizing problems and providing a little bit of help when you need it. And that becomes the person that you go to to get your substances. And um, there's no judgment, but there's help on tap and someone saying, you don't look very well, Jen. 
You don't look like you've eaten for a few days. Are you really looking after yourself, honey? You know what I mean? This is what we tried to instill. And we set up a club um, and it started working. Um, we just pause and marvel at the brilliancy of that that system. I mean, Sounds it's like paid utopia. for. You have like almost individualized care for individuals that need it most based on a system that can early identify indicators that somebody's going through a traumatic experience that intervention would really help in the long run. I mean, there's nothing like that that I can think of that even comes close to addressing a lot of the issues that lead to a lot of the psychological problems of today, including drug use. But even further than that, even like going into depression and all these other problems that have no solutions of any worth that have been i mean and that addresses so just about all of them i mean yeah we were looking at some people it's not good for them to take ecstasy because they're a poor serotonin producers and so for them they feel like shit all the time but when they take a pill they feel like a normal person for a couple of hours and so for those people they just want to take it all the time hmm. but it's better if they don't it's better if they supplement their serotonin in a different way and so, and you can actually identify those people by looking at other markers for that genetic trait. You can do that with an interview, or you could do it with the DNA test as well. But you could do it with a simple interview, diagnostic. And if you're one of these people, you just love taking the pills, but you can't stop. There's actually a much better option for you to feel like a normal person every day than taking the pills and putting so much strain on your body. It's so easy to do that stuff, um, it's particularly when you've got this big database and you can see everybody's usage. Um, and, you, and you know what other meds they're on, and you can get alongside and help people. That's what we wanted to do. Um, as well as looking at, you've taken, you've been, you haven't had a weekend off for a while. Um, your body's probably depleted of this, this, and this. These are the supplements you need, and we can give them to you free of charge. Just take them, you know. Hey, it's been six months since you did a liver, a liver detox. How bad do you feel about taking one if we send it to you? We're just trying to set all that shit up, you know. And we had a 24-hour helpline for... Um, people addicted to crystal meth who we had a psychologist working the phone 24 7 actually he's a really dedicated guy and if you uh, wanted just someone to talk to we'd give you that if you wanted to um you know quit your meth and try a substitute we'd send you that if you're coming down so hard and craving and you need to replace your serotonin or balance your dopamine levels we'd send you a supplement for that free of charge we had that stuff set up um we then went to people that wanted to go. We were having overdoses in nightclubs of GHB. Um, and so we took people in the clubbing community and we promoted and said, do you want to learn how to take your drugs better to maximize the effect? We have got training for how to do this. Do you want to learn first aid what to do when your friend has a drug overdose, how to talk to your friends when they're addicted? And so we'll give you all this training. So we pulled people in and we got the best teachers that we could to train in emergency first aid, particularly what to do with, with drug overdose, um, how to talk to the club owner and to your friends when everyone's too scared to call an ambulance in case the police come, all that kind of shit. And stuff about drug combinations, um, how to make your drugs work better, but also which combinations are really going to put you in trouble and what to do when things go wrong. So we pro provided all that. We called it angel care. And then we rostered people to go into the big dance parties and the clubs to go in and take care of people. That worked kind of well. We did have a lot of um, incidences of um, being first on the scene where someone's lost consciousness, particularly with GHB. And we would be in there in the nightclubs putting airways into people and pulse oximeters and monitoring and... Um, 
and doing all the pre-hospital emergency care stuff, we ended up having people with the same sort of qualification level as the ambulance staff. So the ambulance staff show up and say, what are you doing? And they have a look and think, oh, shit, you're saving this person's life. Thank mm-hmm. you. And we'd be able to hand over. And so that was a good buzz. Um, media started getting a little negative on it. And then what happened is some people, unfortunately, interpreted the system as, if I do this training and wear an angel care armband on my arm at the party, then I don't have to pay for a ticket. And then they'd get in there and say, oh, what are you guys on? Oh, I'm on these pills. Do you want one? Yeah, sure. And so we'd have cases where the person's, hey, uh, your first care responder that came to look after me was more messed up than I was. You know, okay, we need to, okay. <laughs> we need to rethink this a little bit. We need to switch this off for the media to get a hold of it. Um, so we had to go a bit more low-key with that. And then, yeah, they they made all the pills illegal again, and so there was no cash flow, so we had to stop these things. But we were doing pill testing and all that kind of stuff. Um, the festival we were just at in New Zealand was the first festival that I've been to that had a drug testing tent. Uh, by Ohm Productions, Ohmster's Guide to the Galaxy, and we were really amazed that they had a tent for, well, everything. They had a like a, a healing tent if you felt overwhelmed or anything i forget what the cosmic nest or something like that um yeah it was cute and right next to it they had a drug testing tent um so you know if you got stuff during the day then they had a panel of scientists or chemists or whatever who were doing the testing strips okay i don't know no they were super legit own productions they know what they're doing um and also a bunch of charts showing um I particularly like that one, uh, the the synergy, synergistic, and what's bad mix, and don't take this with that, and otherwise, isn't that not not a good idea? Which I thought was clever. Yeah. Uh, So I think that people people don't do their research. Right, and people think you should add alcohol on top of everything, which is the opposite of the truth. (laughs) Alcohol is synergistic with nothing. Yeah. So we were impressed by that. Yeah. Way to go, own productions. Yeah. Please share this episode. Home productions are right. <laughs> I love those guys. They just put so much love into everything they do. Yeah. And festivals are just you can just feel that vibe that comes from that intention, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. It was mm. it was one of the most, yeah, I'd we say loving lucky. festivals we've ever been to. I mean, just the environment, let alone uh the vibe that is cultivated there. But yeah, the festival was on a a privately owned deer and peacock farm, which is deer and peacocks what the hell is that about it was incredible can you imagine oh my gosh just this beautiful just strolling around barefoot because new zealand does nothing that can harm you and even like yeah, sticks the in the ground so seem soft. to not be there but we'd just be hiking and then Why there'd be a peacock leave, right? like yeah. what's up we're like what yeah. that's a peacock that's, that's yeah, it was, yeah it was a lot of fun it was awesome um way to go um productions <laughs> Okay, so you've created the system that can uniquely identify people that are at risk and intervene in a way that is unprecedented, I'd say, and feel comfortable making that claim. Um, how did you wind up in Chiang Mai? Okay, I thought that my lawyers were saying, so how did I wind up in Chiang Mai? Well, like I say, my vision was that we would take the system to United Nations and end the war on drugs by just showing a much better way of doing things. It was pretty idealistic. Um, yeah, my, my, um, by this stage, my, the politicians kind of said, well, we'll go talk to United Nations. might be better if you don't because you look pretty freaky. Hmm. Um, so they went off. They, um, 
New Zealand went and presented the drug policy that we developed. By the stage, it had developed into something which we, um, which basically said, if you create a new drug and you put it through the same toxicity testing as a new medicine goes through, if you show that we meet the same standard, because that's the highest standard we have on the planet for toxicity at the moment, um, for safety, then you're allowed to sell that product, basically. It's got to be non-addictive, can't be damaging to any organ in the body, unlikely to cause death and overdose, and non-neurotoxic. Those are the key things. Those are the main problems with drugs, brain damage, addiction, death, disease. Get rid of those things. Supply safer alternatives is the way forward. That'll reduce demand. United Nations Drug Control Office said, okay, well done, New Zealand. That's the only solution on the table for the emerging drug threat. Many countries came and did workshops with New Zealand on how this would work. A lot of countries asked for the um, analytical data pack package on um, um, impact on other industry and economic um, analysis and it all looked really good I mean even the treasury guys said well this works really well it frees up all those resources and um, and um, justice and uh, law enforcement and also in health you know it takes it just reduces the health burden so everyone was keen on the idea I thought well this is cool I'm going to be like knighted or something and be like mm. sir Matt Bowden my mm. ego was just enormous at this point um, so but the problem was that we started getting we started getting some objections there were two main objections one was the liquor and tobacco industry in new zealand when i came back i thought well it's all very well creating a safer alternative to meth but the main dangerous drug in our country is alcohol in new zealand it kills two or three people every single day thousand what? deaths a year five thousand from tobacco country. that's a huge percentage it's phenomenal didn't we read the other day that six percent seven percent of deaths globally are attributed to alcohol Yep. Toxic to every organ in the body, highly addictive, and absolutely will cause death if you have too much of it. If you've got two children, one of them takes a big old overdose of synthetic cannabinoids, the other one drinks a bottle of vodka, you've only got one ambulance, send the vodka kid, man, they're going to die. You know, and that's how it works. So I started making these sort of statements in the media. The next thing we need is a safer alternative to alcohol. It's not hard to do. It's not hard to trigger those same GABA receptors that alcohol triggers without having all that toxicity. You know, let's have something. Yeah. So we started down that line, and it took about two weeks. Wow. Um, within a couple of weeks, it was coming up to election time. It was a very dirty election. We had a banker who was the prime minister, and they were just – it was dirty. It was really dirty. Um, I was told by a parliamentary insider, the liquor industry have gone to the prime minister. You are going down. Get the fuck out, you know. I didn't know what that meant. But what it meant was that um, overnight everything just changed. You know, it was a weird thing. I'd come to a place where um, being frustrated with trying to run a committee of other industry members who didn't want to do what I want, I thought, well, it's better. If, maybe it's better if I'm the guy that's making the money. I set up essentially a pharmaceutical company. I had a bunch of chemists, we had a lab, we'd designed licenses and applied for them being granted, so we were um, allowed to um, research new drugs and um, create new compounds um, and manufacture. Um, I was able to import LSD and MDMA precursors, which was like something that I'd kind of intentioned in my heart and believed for and had manifested into reality. I had these licenses in this lab. Um, and suddenly I was, I was making millions of dollars. I'd I guess I'd intended and um, desired a chunk of cash and it manifested and became real. Um, but I was really unhappy. I had so much money. I was like um, doing dumb stuff. People, you know, when you've got a lot of money, you 
you end up with everybody coming to you begging and wanting money for this and wanting money for that. I One day a week I used to sit in a cafe with a PA and um, just queue up all the people that were coming begging, would see me on the news, knew I had money, and, and give them half an hour each and try to listen. What do you want to do? I want to make a movie about this. Okay, I'm not interested. What do you want to do? I want to build a kitchen for homeless people in the middle of the city. Okay, yeah, we'll put some money into that. What do you want to, et cetera, et cetera. Doing some good things, but um, being frustrated. You don't know who your friends are and who just wants to be around you because they want cash and there's people that you're looking after who you you know paying a lot of money to and then suddenly the money stops and they just don't want to know you anymore and it's um privilege so quickly becomes entitlement you know everybody's always trying to get it off you it's really horrible i really hated it i remember sitting down i had a beautiful a few beautiful houses one in the country with a stone fruit orchard and a citrus orchard and duck pond and um, a bushwalk and I'd sit down there and just say look i'm really unhappy I feel like my soul is so attached to something so heavy on this earth that um, I'm losing who I am as a person and my spirit's kind of clipped in and bound. And it's like I'm attached to some great weight under the earth of all this gold. I wish I could be free of it. Please take away everything I don't need. I remember kind of praying that one day. Um, And snap, it took about 48 hours. And the Prime Minister changed the laws overnight, making everything we were doing illegal. There were people marching in the streets that suddenly the animal rights people were really well funded and organized, marching in the streets with all the cameras and media there, obviously organized by somebody really switched on and clever, um, with the idea that the legal high industry want to kill your dog. Matt Bowden wants to kill dogs to test his drugs on. It was lies. The government had said there's not going to be any testing on dogs. This is bullshit. But um, people were being stirred up to think that we were trying to test drugs on animals and this was somehow wrong even though half the protesters were wearing makeup and products that had definitely been tested on animals like everything is the drug the moral transgression of people wanting to take a new drug that's not alcohol or tobacco um that's been tested on an animal was just repugnant to everybody and all of this was going on to stir up um this moral panic and um they said there were queues outside the legal high shops which was made to look really really bad imagine if you only had one liquor store in town there's going to be some damn queues because everyone wants their liquor. And if you've only got one licensed outlet for legal highs in town, there's going to be queues. This was made to look like it was the end of the world. And so if something had to change, the Prime Minister came on the TV and said, look, you know, these guys want to kill fluffy animals, and I just can't see that happen. So he changed those laws, made everything illegal, and they put a clause in the law saying the industry may not seek compensation for this change. And then someone went to my bank told my bank some horror story. I guess that because they were bankrolling a drug dealer, they were going to lose their international banking license. So they dropped me as a customer, pulled all my properties to mortgage sale. Then the tax guys came in and accused me of withholding um, employee pay-as-you-earn tax, which is a, a one thing you can go to jail for in New Zealand. And they pressured my staff, went to their houses, told them they had to testify a whole lot of bullshit against me. Otherwise, they were going to lose their houses. So everyone started suing me. And um, I was made to look like, you know, this guy's trying to sell drugs to children. I was the bad guy. And then they came, destroyed my asset base. And when I had no money, then came and said, you've got to pay like a million dollars now or you're going to go to jail. I said, okay. So I looked at the law and the law says that, you know, with the tax guys, if you offer them everything you've got and it's the best offer that they're going to get, um, they have to take it. So I told them the law says you have to take this. I'll give you my high net, my whole net worth. I can't go to jail. I've got a family. I've got two young girls, and they need their dad in the house. Um, even though I don't mind fighting you on this because you're wrong and I'm right, I, don't, I can't afford to go to jail. 
And they said the law also says that the commissioner may, at his discretion, select certain individuals to be um, made an example of um, with the full force of the law to encourage voluntary compliance in the remainder of the population. In other words, we're allowed to choose you, break all the laws, to totally smash you so that everybody else knows not to fuck with us. And that's what they did. Um, And so, yeah, I got on a plane and moved. At what time did you you look back on all this and say, oh, my prayers have been answered? I feel like a much better person now. I feel like I've been delivered from that mammon and that materialism. I feel like my children were growing up spoiled and I was growing up spoiled and I was losing contact with who I was, losing contact with why we were doing it in the first place. And um, coming to Thailand the first year or two, I just totally lost my self-esteem, totally depressed and felt abandoned, felt like I'd been thrown out of my country, turned on by my government after they'd, after we'd worked together for nearly 20 years and many of my friends turned on me and, it was, and everything was so bitter, particularly people that were owed money and didn't get paid. You know, it's, it's horrible. You get close to suicide in these times. You know, it's the most depressing, horrible feeling and, um, and still being hounded and the media have made up all these horrible stories about you that are being published and going worldwide and so... I would just walk down the street back home in New Zealand and um, people would come up and just start giving me abuse and because they don't they don't know you. They know there's an image of you that's been created by media, like a reflection or, a, or, or something which has been promoted out there. And people look at you and think you're that person. And um, it's really, really difficult. That was a pretty dark time. <laughs> it was interesting doing research for talking to you and looking at some of these interviews or reading articles that... By and large, my interpretation of it was like even in, the, in like the sixty minutes interview where they might have started framing it, trying to be like Matt Bowden, blah blah blah, and trying to be like bad, and then you would come on and you'd be like, "I'm incredibly intelligent and very accurate and good," and like they they just nobody was successful at making you look bad, even when it was like trying to be a spin on that. And by and large, all of the media information that we were finding was definitely being like. He's such a reasonable man in an unreasonable world. Yeah, I I tried to do the right thing. I did get, yeah, once we had a whole bunch of money, I really, I just got so sick of every weekend more media coming from America or France or Germany or um, England or just all over Australia. Just so many people just coming and wanting more um just this, just the media just got so out of hand and the government and the pressure and the fame. It was just, I just wanted to play music. I just wanted it all to go away. I thought, okay, well, we've had a good idea for drug policy. We've put it out there. Can I just go back and get on with my life now? Um, I actually don't really like promoting drugs. I, you know, I, I don't really like what they're doing to people. I'd prefer if we learn to access these states without using the drugs, you know. Um, so that's more of what you're up to now? Yeah, well, I just thought we started doing these big music shows and um, the idea being that if the show is good enough, you don't need to take any drugs. We would, a lot of people just completely trip out on the theatrical stuff that we do and the idea is that you don't need to take drugs to get yourself into an excitable state or to have a conscious experience. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> so now, yeah, I mean, I, just, I really just want to entertain and play music and um, put on shows. So we do... We started off with um, the Starboy show that we were, we were touring, um, having a show where every we know there's costumes and 
every song there's a different theatrical element that comes on and we start with being a band on the stage but while we're playing it somehow opens some kind of rift in space time and so either zombies or orcs or aliens or monsters will usually when we start playing start at the back of the crowd and start interfering with people work their way to the front take the stage and there'll be battles we have maori warriors come out and take down monsters with their tire hearts and tear out their hearts and blood would go splatting everywhere and then the maori warriors would jump into the crowd and grab the woman and run off with them just massive we'd go and do this at festivals so you show up at a festival to watch a show and then or just pandemonium breaks this like this just to just take away the limits on where you can go with with entertainment and theatrics just to give people a really cool experience um that was 100% non-toxic. Uh, it was where I wanted to go next, yeah. And are you, how how much are you like presenting it like that or having that kind of dialogue or presentation with people of, be, of you don't need drugs or anything to have these experiences be beautiful? Yeah, I mean, in, in New Zealand, I had to address it because um, everybody knew me. I was like a celebrity there. Everyone knows you're the guy selling the drugs and now you're trying to be a musician. How the hell are you, can you do that? Why don't you put your suit back on with your little glasses and your tie? And um, I was like, well, I'm sick of doing that now. I want to move on. Um, I'm an artist. Um, actually, the policy stuff I was doing, I actually saw as just a form of artistic expression as well, you know. Um, That's cool. For me... Uh, I just want to do this now. and and But now, coming to Chiang Mai, what I got back was my anonymity. You know, you don't know the value of your anonymity until somebody takes it off you. You know, being able to walk into a supermarket to buy your groceries or whatever without being recognized, or being able to walk down the street with, you know, it's so valuable. And what when you lose your anonymity, what you lose is the... Um, it's the opportunity of the first impression when you meet someone. You get to make a first impression on them. But if some mainstream media have already done a story on you with a nasty undertone, uh, then your first impression's gone. Um, or people have already people have already got an impression of you based on somebody else's edit, you know? Totally. Um, and so, yeah, it was nice to come here and be anonymous again um, and try to blend in. <laughs> So that sounds. I mean, that, that I can't wait till we actually get to go see Labyrinth Circus, and that can be reached at labyrinthcircus.com, which we'll certainly put in the in the notes. Um, and those happen every Friday. So the idea there is again, we want to create an experience which is a trip without tripping. a trip without tripping. And so you can We take a nightclub. We've been doing this in Thailand, and um, you come in. The doors open. You're led into a little antechamber. And there's a video playing that says the labyrinth is about personal transformation. It's about it's a conscious meditation. It's a dance meditation ritual. You need to make a choice now. Depending on which path you take, um, it's going to affect the outcome of your evening. And then and we actually build a labyrinth. We have a maze. And so you've got to go through one door or the other door. And depending on where you go, you end up in different rooms with clues. Then you come in and there's like um, tribal drums playing and didgeridoo and um, <clears throat> tribal rock music. And as we go through the show, there's a lot of theatrics on the stage with holograms. And we do some things with, with magic mirrors. And we have a cauldron and potion. And everyone put their intentions into the cauldron. We tried doing like a community kind of a thing where we have like a cauldron with a potion. It's actually just iced tea. 
if one puts their intentions in and charges it spiritually and then we dish it out and people drink it and then after that all these theatrics start happening we have walls that appear and move amongst the audience and skeletons that are dancing around people shadow dancing them and so we're, we're sort of singing about exploring your shadow and about finding the that you know that dark reflection inside each of us and coming to accept it and move through it and moving through things like forgiveness and um, setting intentions for joy and gratitude all these different things that um, that we want to sort of bed into people's psyches a little um, but we do it in, in with theater um, and entertainment so if you want to go deep you can go deep if you just want to watch it it's cool it's like colorful and bright and theatrical but then it turns into a bit of a role play so while you're at the party there's a bunch of people in costume you don't know if the person next to you is another party goer or they're a character and until partway through the conversation they ask if you can help them find their magic sword or to find the dragon hunter to find their courage or whatever and so there's clues all around the venue and you realize that if you that there's actually a game that you're in the middle of a dungeons and dragons game and you can't leave the party until it's been won and there's like a treasure room with all these chests that are locked up and you know at a certain time in the evening people start you know um achieving and fulfilling their quests and get given a key and then so you run to try to open the key but you've got to answer the riddle first and then we create these experiences so if you want to come in and play the game you can win the game you can win prizes and you can have a hell of an experience going through this big adventure of role play with all these characters but if you want to sit back and watch then it's just like there's just a thematic texture that's going all around you um, and there's a theme of personal transformation and change if you want to embrace that or you can just buzz out and listen to the bands dance and find someone else to talk to, you know. But that's what that's what we've started doing as a as an experience, and then trying to take that into festivals. So how can we make that whole experience pop up and disappear again in a forty five minute slot? We're trying it out in Thailand, and next the the plan is we'll move to Europe and try doing it at festivals there and see if that works. That's awesome. That sounds, yeah. that sounds absolutely spectacular. Like, wow, really. I don't know now. <laughs> Set that up next time we're in Chiang Mai. Is yeah. it how often do you play in Chiang Mai? I think we're going to do it. What I want to do is find a place where we can do it regularly, like the cabaret does. You know, so maybe um, once a week. Well, that might be too much for me. Maybe once every couple of weeks or something. Just go bang, bang, bang. Probably start one in about six to eight weeks' time from now. We'll do one, um, and we just call on whoever wants to be involved, like artists. Dancers, actors, um, story writers, all these sorts of people. Let's all use all of our disciplines, you know, acrobats, fire performers. Come and bring what it is that you do best, your gift, your skill, and let's just work it all into one narrative and um, theme it and skin it and then just make it into one big, amazing experience. And let's tour it. Hmm. I love that idea. Could you go a little bit more into why a labyrinth and what that represents? Sure. Well, the labyrinth, when you walk, a labyrinth is like a maze, right? And it's like a meditation. You walk into it, you set your intention, and then on your way in towards the center, you just you go to the left, then the right, then the left and the right. Sometimes you're going north, south, west, east. You go through all directions. And as you're doing that, in your mind, you're going, and as you're doing that, in your mind, you're going through, all the different directions and permutations and connotations and your mind is filtering through everything it needs to sift and filter through um, to get to your intention and you get to that center and you when you walk back out it's like you leave a part of you behind and you become a new person it's like the um, 
is it Ulysses who goes on the on the quest? It's like it's the it's the classic um, kind of quest for development. And for me, you know, I think you come to. I've just been reading what's the guy's name like a month Richard Raw talking about first half of life and second half of life. In the first half of life, you're trying to build yourself up based on other people's um, impressions when you're a child you're trying to please your parents and then you're trying to please people in society and you're trying to fit in what everyone wants you to be and then you come to a point in your life where you think you know what stuff all that let's just let go I'm going to be I want to just live up to my own standards and I'm becoming a fractured person I'm, I'm, I'm you know fractionated into trying to please all these different folks I'm 10 different people I just want to be who I am and let go of everything else and that's when you're you know when we feel like oh, I'm middle aged I'm getting old or something Actually, what's happening is that's when your life really begins. That's when you know who you are and you can do the thing you want to do. I don't know. Is that part of the labyrinth? I'm not sure. You get to the center and find your way back out again. You know who you are. Um, you've reached personal transformation. And that's what we're trying to do for people. The noble pursuit. Indeed. Nice. Yeah. I, love that. I really want that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. And that's what people are looking for with psychedelics, I think, as well. Is that Absolutely. Set an intention for personal change and development. Did you want any more rock star stories? Um, I want to know how you have integrated your daughters into into rock star life, and they have become performers in their own right. Yeah, Shannon and I have been very impressed, as you've heard us say that uh, your daughters, your daughters are, are pretty awesome. pretty awesome <laughs> individuals, both of them. Uh, yeah, so. I mean, diamonds come from great pressure. I mean, these girls have been through, um, they've kind of been through hell as well with, um, you know, like I had, there was one, um, excuse me, a gentleman in New Zealand who suggested on the news that, you know, whoever's making these drugs needs to be hung um, publicly on TV uh, to make sure nobody else ever does this again, we need to hang this guy on television. Holy shit! With my kids watching that when they're talking about daddy, so they've seen some pretty, some pretty shocking stuff. And um, you know, like we had this nice house, nice cars, and everything. And then next minute, um, they saw me on the news a lot, and they know what I'm doing with drug policy. And then they knew suddenly everything's being taken off us, and we have to flee the country and come into exile on a foreign land where. You know, where we were living, we were real remote, living in Doisiket. We were just surrounded by rice paddies and then some banana trees and then the bottom of the Himalayas. There were no people around. I just felt so hurt and upset. I just want to get the hell away from everything and everyone. So we came to live out in the middle of the rice fields. And so the kids were, you know, claiming, where's my PlayStation? Where's my Xbox? Where's my toys? And so we um, took them to, like, an orphanage and said, hey, um, None of these kids has got. None of these kids here have got a mummy or a daddy, and um, no one's got any toys or anything. Oh man, aren't we lucky? We've got like a whole family, and we're all healthy. And like my little daughter, just she she went back home and just gathered up all her dolls and everything, and just said, "Look, give it to those kids." You know. Aww. And so, I don't know. We just. I think it was it was it was a real blessing, I guess being um, ejected out of that first world Western material mindset and come into a place where we can see what's really important and what has real value and coming into a different culture where this is a very collective kind of a uh, community here. Everyone's not just out for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, coming into that has been really good. But we just, 
I just always try to talk to my children like adults and try to te- try to treat them as though they were highly evolved, intelligent beings living inside there, inside the mind of that child. And the more the more we do that, the more we find that they respond to that, and that in fact human beings are somehow intuitive or 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 are highly intelligent much more than we kind of let on there's there is another part of us inside that um that can be sort of developed and recognized really easily by just not assuming they're dumb when my daughter was born i remember she was um she came out and the doctor said you know she's not the baby's not breathing you know we need to try to do this or that and they took the baby a while to sort stuff to finally let the health system stuff up my child so i just picked her up and looked at looked her in the eye and said your name is shazandra i'm your dad you need to do something for me breathe and the doctor's like she can't hear you she can't see you and i'm like she knows my voice she made eye contact and started breathing and she knows she knew exactly what i told her to do and so you need to just take everything same with a grain of salt know that you have a connection with your child it's like quantum physics tells us if you take one thing and break it into a couple of parts and you affect one. You know, quantum entanglement, we're entangled. Our DNA is, is, is connected. Our cells came from each other. And so I'm a big believer in a lot of things. <laughs> What's um, the most unrealistic thing you believe in? Um, I don't think anything's unrealistic. I don't think anything's unrealistic. I, I just, I think we co we we co create that humans. We're different. To, we know we're different to the animals, and and that we have this. We have creativity and imagination, and our imagination is uh is, is a creative tool. It's a manifestation tool. Like when I, when everything was going really well for me. I started having this um, this dream or the story of an alchemist, and he's in he's in a town, and um, everyone's asleep, and there's aliens kind of invading, and there's a small child who's running through the town and trying to wake people up, and this this became the story of the Eternity trilogy. We thought we've got to make a rock, let's make the coolest rock that's ever been made, let's make the steampunk movie trilogy, and then he gets sort of run out of town by. Um, by the um, guy selling the alcohol and the priest. And the funny thing is that as we were filming this video, the moment we were filming that final scene in Eternity where the alchemist gets knocked out by these guys, 60 Minutes had come to die to you know, document part of my life, and they were filming it, and they suddenly they got a bad impression. This guy's got so much money. He's making these movies and hiring all these people, having fun. And so they started making this horrible documentary, and so which ended up getting me all the bad press that got me chucked out of town. And um, so and so in the story, this um, alchemist f- leaves the flat planet and uh, tries to fly to a higher world, but he, like Icarus, is, you know, his, his uh, wingsuit craps out, he runs out of gas, gets sucked into a vortex and dumped down into this lower, this lower um, plane world where he hooks up with a creative artistic community and then makes a comeback. And so for me, I was just dreaming this stuff up, making the story. And as we were filming it and writing the story, it just started manifesting that became our reality. And so that life imitates art, you know, that we, we create these stories and narratives in our mind from our imagination. And as we put them out, they kind of manifest into reality. Um, but is that unrealistic or is that just, 
that's realistic that's reality it's what happens it's the fabric of the universe is that somehow imagination becomes material you know that thought becomes matter um i think it's is it unrealistic no that's reality itself it's the fabric of reality yeah i don't think it's unrealistic realistic have you, ever, uh, have you ever read Illusions by Richard Bach? Have you ever read any Richard Bach? I think you really like him. I think so. Uh, Jonathan Living Things. Jo- the Se- Seagull. Jonathan Living Things. Seagull is Richard Bach. Famous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I read that one, yeah. And I think like, the one that comes after that is Illusions. The the Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah. Where it talks a lot about... Uh, oh, it's fantastic. It's very short. You should read yeah, it like tonight. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It in a day. And it's uh, a lot about manifestation and... and and the concepts that you just so eloquently talked about. I think enjoy it. Many of his books are all about this uh, very Which, fluid interweaving between reality, quote, quote, hands, and imagination, yeah. where you can't tell what's what because it's all Sad. semi-autobiographical. Right before we moved to Thailand, these were the books that we were reading. And, and since then, a common theme in our lives has been this question of, how much your imagination and creativity can manifest reality. It seems like we've moved here. We started pursuing things that we actually want to pursue rather than doing things that other people have persuaded us that we should be doing. And, and as we sort of start to swim with the stream of the river, it all becomes a lot easier than trying to swim up. And, and everything that we've sort of thought was possible has now become a reality. And it's, it's amazing. Or even things we watch. thought were impossible have become yeah. realities. It's it's quite it's astounding how true those things are when you embrace those concepts. Yeah, anything you anything you can imagine in your mind and then ask for and believe, you can manifest. You can set a goal in your mind. You know, I want this many million dollars by this day or something. And if you really believe it and don't let another thought in your mind, then um, what choice does the universe reality. have? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I manifested Trevor. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I don't recommend just manifesting large chunks of cash. I did it. A lot of people speak on it and say it's a good idea. It's not a good idea at all. It's not a good idea. I had so many problems creep up in my life when I manifested cash. I didn't really do much for it either. I just, people came in. Yeah. Not recommended. Try to go for something higher than cash, I think. Definitely. Yeah, I would, I would, I had a similar sort of thing. I knew. Uh, when I was single, I thought I want to meet the right person on that, the right partner. And I just kept saying, okay, I'm just one day. I'd kind of pray for this person, reach out, try to connect, connect to them, you know. Sometimes I see them in my dreams, just could see that, just maybe their eyes. It's like there's like a wall always between me and this woman, and she's dancing, always dancing. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I I thought, okay, the first, I asked for a sign, you know. I come from a um, Judeo-Christian background. And so there's a story of Isaac and Rebecca. This guy um, has to go and find the right, you know, wife for his master. And so the servant goes to the other village and says, "Okay, as a sign, the first woman that comes and brings drink for me or my camels, I know she's the right chick." I thought, "Hey, that's a damn good idea. I'm going to do this." So I'm like, "Okay, the when it's going to happen, I'm going to meet this girl. She's going to come up and she's going to bring me a drink." It's really weird, but every time I met anybody, they always asked me to buy them a drink. No one bought me a drink. You know, I got real damn thirsty, and then. After after a few years, I gave up on it and just had what just went into normal relationship with normal person and then just sort of so frustrated. This is the wrong person came out of it and then 
ended up getting getting kind of messed up, falling into meth addiction and um, working with some um, horrible gangsters and um, ended up with uh, being caught with the wrong sort of people. I thought that, that we were working on a legitimate project, but I was working with some major criminal guy with underground labs supplying all the gangs and being under surveillance and going to the police and saying, am I in trouble? This is in Australia. Living at a gang headquarters for a while where everyone's running around with guns and doing hits on each other. and Jeez. Had a crazy, crazy, crazy life for a while. Got the hell out of Australia. Came back to New Zealand and was um, um, one day at a restaurant talking to a couple of friends. And then suddenly it's like I could see the restaurant from above. I could see all the other tables like I was above, like I was on the ceiling. And then I could see the whole of Auckland Harbour. I thought, far out, I'm going up. This is weird. <sighs> and, um, you know, I'd asked, well, how am I going to meet this girl? And I always got told, read this book of Esther about this king with all these exotic dances and then chooses me. Anyway, so, so I'm going up, up, and then I'm in this place, like this big bright light above me, and I'm like, oh, um, hey, listen, I'm not really doing the whole religion-y thing anymore. Um, girl never showed up, kind of unimpressed, don't have a lot of faith. I'm just going to scoot through the rest of my life and then we can talk about this later, right? <laughs> I'm not keen anymore, drug addict, criminal, in a lot of trouble. Um, and this voice, or not so much a voice, just words appeared in me saying, now you are ready. And um, then, bang, I'm in my body. I said to my friends, hey, I just went to heaven. They're like, no, dude, you've had DMT or you've had acid, you're holding out on us. I'm like, no, no, I'm straight. I haven't had any drugs. I've just had this experience, this out-of-body experience. I'm like, no, you've just been sitting here. But I thought, no, I'm ready. Something's about to happen. And it was so crazy. I walked into a club and um, someone came up to me on the dance floor and said, hey, if there was a God that was real, what would it say to you right now? I'm like, fuck, this is too weird. I don't know. He said, oh, everyone should just love one another. And this girl says, I'm like, wow. Sat there and said, okay, God, universe, whatever. Whatever you want to do in my life is cool. I don't care, okay? I don't really care about my life anymore. I'll do whatever you want, just whatever. So I walk into a strip bar, um, and everything else is closed. I'm not really, not a really big porn guy, but I used to, I used to sell drugs sometimes in a strip bar. And there's this girl, and she's dancing on a stage. It's like I'm back in that heaven space, and she's there. Dance. She comes closer, and she opens her eyes. As soon as we made eye contact, it's like, snap! What? Did I, well, I've seen this before somewhere. How? How do I know this? It's like I recognized the eyes from a dream or something. I don't know. I thought, shit, I've got to talk to this girl. She's amazing. This, the way she moved and this the connection we had just in a few seconds. She's so gorgeous. And she, I go to talk to her and she comes to me. And she goes, stop, I want to talk to you as well. But before you say anything, I have to get you a drink. I don't know why, okay? It must mean something. So she goes to the bar, gets me a drink, and then the person running the club says, if you want to talk to that girl, it's like 20 bu oh, 70 bucks for 20 minutes or something. Go in the lap dance room. So I sit down, and she brings me this drink. I still don't really, haven't really clicked that someone's finally bought me a drink. But I'm just kind of gaga. And um, and just amazing. Yeah, she starts talking to me. Hey, can you tell me anything about God? And I'm like, what? This is too far out. God is love. God's just love. That's all it is. Imagine if love was the power that drove the whole universe and that's what everything was made out of you know that's what the god is if anything you know and, um, she had she had another stripper friend that had a twisted back and walked in and she said oh can can this can this god heal and i'm like yeah put your hand on it on this and she 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 
asked for healing, put out the stripper, and her back clicked back and clicked into place, and she just got healed. It was so bizarre. There's so much just faith and energy and belief in this room. And then, yeah, eventually I clicked, you know. This is the girl. She's bought me this drink. And um, we just totally fell so in love. And there's all these other things that, um, all these different, you know, I used to live life by signs for a while looking for signs and then decided it was a really dumb idea and got really upset and depressed and then all these signs started kind of clicking back in. I don't recommend life living life by signs. I think it's a dumb idea, especially if you're using psychedelics because confirmation bias and, you know. <laughs> anyway, but that was the craziest story for a manifestation for me, you know. And someone had asked me a couple of days earlier, you know, you know, if I'd if I'd still be, was still a believer, and I'm like, look, if there's a god or whatever, and this girl's going to show up, she better be like a international cover girl or something. <laughs> forget about it. But it was so bizarre when I said, "What have you been doing with your life?" She goes, "I've been in this magazine, in this magazine, traveling around the world on that." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, the international cover girl, cool." <laughs> <laughs> so bizarre. But this is life, you know. And the more you invest in um, imagination and intention and belief. Um, the more you can influence this universe around you. It's so bizarre. We're in this kind of relationship with, I don't actually like the word God that much. I call it the archetypal consciousness. It's a thing that we're connected to, the original flame. Whatever whatever you want to call it, it invites us into relationship to co-create. And it has this, it is love. It has this love and acceptance for us, no matter what we do. Like if you have a child, you're not going to judge your child. If your child makes a mistake or falls over, you just pick them up, carry on. It's all good, you know. It's the way life's meant to be. There's not meant to be judgment and this, you know, fears of moral transgression and crap. We're supposed to just kind of move on and practically regulate. <laughs> it seems like such a simple message that is so easily misunderstood. It's a shame. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. I think probably what will happen next is we'll probably scrap the religions and... Um, Science is kind of knocking on religion's door now, asking for explanations, please, you know, because, you know, space and time are starting to sort of fold into each other. And we've got, you know, um, we're starting to realize that matter's only there when we're looking at it. And uh, the rest of the time it's waveform and, and, and consciousness and, and we can create it with our minds. And um, we're starting to see that happen and it doesn't sound so kooky anymore. Yeah, it's funny to watch it all sort of be validated as we go deeper and smaller into physics. And it's like, wow, those concepts, uh, there's some legitimacy to the, the, the things that people would have thought were crazy not so long ago. That's it. And so now it's a point of finding a common ground. I love I love um, hanging out within the within the Buddhist kind of framework here and realizing that much of, much of them are just in a place of seeking peace and connection and then you look at the yoga and the Hindu thing, much the same. And, and everybody's just everybody's just looking to see, everyone's just being preparing. It's like an emerging common spirituality which is coming out of mankind now at this time where we're starting to connect, realize, and just be at a place of peace and um, listening to each other a, a little more and connecting, moving forward to co-manifesting. I certainly hope so. Because if you turn on the news, that's not the... Uh... Not not what you might hear, uh, but it does seem that way on in, in a, in a microscopic level. But when you look at the macro, it's at least there's forces out there that want you to think that it's 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 a bleak outlook. I think that's a lot of fear-driven 
I think when people are afraid, they tend to be more like sheep. Yeah. Well, I mean, the news used to be something where they reported information that people needed to have. It was like a public service, but it's not that anymore, you know? I sing about it a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Interestingly enough, I believe it was 60 Minutes that was the first news publication in the United States to ever turn a profit. Up until then, it was an obligation for the right to broadcast given by the government that they had to have an hour of news that was never profitable before that to give people information that they needed. And then 60 Minutes came along and changed that paradigm. Wow. Yeah, I think I've done 60 Minutes maybe three or four times, different ones. The first one was really good, and then there was one that's not so good. (laughs) That's yeah, I mean, that 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 birthed the twenty four hour news cycle, which it's not great for for anyone yeah. really. I mean, it's it's an interesting uh, evolution of that. Is there any such thing as cut to a song or not? Yeah. Cut to a th- <laughs> like as in like we edit this and then there's yeah, a song. Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. give you some songs. If you yeah, want. that sounds yeah, great. Yeah, right. we, absolutely. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's. Nice. We did that in our in our Jitep episode. Did you get the chance to see Liliana perform at River Stage? Liliana at River Stage, no. Yeah. Oh, she was fantastic. Well, you should listen to our Jitep episode. Okay. We talk yeah. about you for sure. Um, but yeah, we played. She she gave us a little piece of music to play, and she was really she just yeah. absolutely, absolutely adorable. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow! So I guess yeah. I did. We've got an album which is out on Spotify and everything else called Starboy Homecoming, which is it's psychedelic rock. So the idea is it's um it's a concept album. Every song just flows into another song, and it's like it's got lots of recordings from traveling all around the world, taken in flight lounges and trains and all these things. Mm-hmm. So it's traveling, wow. traveling, um, and a lot of the the music is kind of progressive rock. It's written. I did music at university, so it's written for rock band with orchestras and a lot of psychedelic and electronic sounds mixed in um this the um starboy eternity movie which you can see if you go to starboyeternity.com songs come from that album next album coming out soon is called liberty over time liberty over time there's a track in there called liberty liberty is an iconic statue by day but at night liberty dances with destiny and Vanity and several other chicks with stripper names. <laughs> and uh, this is the story of this is the story of Liberty. Last dance for Liberty. Check it out right now. Liberty draws on a cigarette. Smoldering memory sheet. Rather forget. Backstage day with a looking glass Just wondering again if a time has
love so we're, we're we're getting short on time here um, and i would have loved to have gone more into the music um but we also have these questions that we need to ask so, i guess we don't really need to, i mean hopefully we, like we would love to in the future come back and interview you and christy Chris, christy um but okay so question number two since we already got the first one if there was one behavior or action you could get everyone in the world to do or stop doing, what would it be? Listen to each other. That's beautiful. I like that. That certainly doesn't happen enough. Mm-mm. What is the most annoying thing about people? What's annoying about people? I don't find people annoying. Ever no circumstances under which you find people annoying, or I mean, an annoying well, thing so that they do. It's so subjective. If yeah. somebody's doing something which is causing me to react in a negative way, then I want to find out why, so that I don't keep reacting like that. You know, I don't like reacting, being annoyed by somebody. So um, it's up to me to adjust my own reactions, really, rather than try to expect other people to change for my benefit what if what they're doing is working for them that's beautiful and evolved i like the ownership that you take i think that's something that hopefully is becoming more common or at least being talked about more is that your reaction to people is something that you should probably uh take charge of and it's a choice we're promoting the idea of people um staking their whole identity and taking offense you know Oh, you can't say this against this minority group. You'll offend people. No, only only if they want to be offended. It's a choice. I've never loved you more than this moment. You just <laughs> exponentially became more of a hero. Yes, that was worded so well. Yeah, we talk about this constantly. This is oh my god. Yeah, Generation Z. <laughs> Another <laughs> shout out. <laughs> yeah. We have you um, ever read or listened to Jonathan Haidt? He's a professor at NYU, and he's now writing a lot about uh, the coddling of Generation Z, uh, the generation after millennials, and how they're all about this safe space, trigger warning, call-out culture, where nothing, anything that interferes with my perspective is, I don't want to hear it, it's bad. Anything that you yeah. say that causes me to think outside of this and it's turning like the progressive movement like this sort of leftist culture that i would have considered myself a part of recently into something that has demonized free speech to where you're no longer allowed to say anything that i find that i could potentially find offensive because that violates my safe space to the point where institutions of higher education are now censoring themselves left and right and and so counter counterproductive and counterintuitive to what i would have considered a progressive agenda i mean it's but it's a curated perspective that's being put on us you know it's being curated and edited and manicured by by whom by whom is the question i mean i my general fallback answer to that is by major corporations but it seems a little seems a little I mean, but it's not just stuff I'm hearing in the news. I mean, like, I was working in corporate America before we moved to Thailand, and there was a a decent amount of people along the age spectrum, but I worked closely with a lot of people in Generation Z and to experience it firsthand. And even in our friend group, 
back home that there's definitely a couple of people from that generation and just like the how extremely different we were on these issues was astounding where millennials were all about free speech and wanting to like understand and be open and then generation z in saying that they are trying to be open and woke yeah how dare you violate this safe space for people to be open and woke in yeah exactly by having a different opinion or yeah trying to i mean so the an example that was the first major example where i started really hearing about this and i was so upset i think it was 2014 and at yale a professor was fired because at halloween uh, i think like yale or no this one dormitory had sent out an email to all of their students living there saying it's halloween let's try to be very mindful about how we dress we don't want to offend anybody so and then this one professor came back and emailed like emailed that dorm saying you guys are Ivy League students, you are adults and independent thinkers. I encourage you to dress however you want to identify. And if you see somebody who's wearing a costume that you that might offend you in some way, I encourage you to have a conversation with them. Ask them why they're wearing that and explain why it might offend you. And instead of shutting them down, have an open dialogue where you can understand each other's points of view. And that professor was demonized tortured by students she and her husband were both like put on task and trial and they were both fired from yale because students came back saying that that was it's kind of getting real sick so this is in our educational institutions yeah yeah it's it's pretty it's, yeah it's systemic now it's 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 a real problem i mean yeah yeah i think it's important to be able to maintain in your mind more than one perspective i like to analyze things from four or five different paradigms is the world round or is it flat well it looks kind of round when we see it from space sure but when i close my eyes and want to and want to travel to another plane it's easier if i just think of things in two dimensions like it's flat you know Mm -hmm. so is it round or is it flat yes 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 you know try to keep a number of different paradigms going in your mind because to be truly scientific i mean Science is not a bunch of answers. It's just a way of framing questions. And um, we've always made mistakes before in science. So to learn from that, it's important to be able to undo your thinking and to backtrack if you need to, to hold, uh, you know, an open platform so that you can develop more theories, you know. Um, And I think it's important to have a whole bunch of different perspectives. If you're trying to look at a 3D object, you can't look at it from just one point. You need to look at it from a whole bunch of different points. And um, the universe has got more than three dimensions, so it's good to just maintain a whole bunch of different perspectives, to listen to as many people's perspectives as you can, and just stop the negative reaction that happens, and um, just allow them to flow into your mind, I think, and see how it all sits. And eventually you get like a magic eye effect where you can see um, much more broadly. I don't know. <laughs> That's yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. What is something that is really popular now, but in five years, everyone will look back on and be embarrassed by? Oh, um, yeah, those things. <laughs> in five years. Um, Whatever. Give or take. Five or ten. Um, mm. Might take longer. We're okay with that. 
Oh, I don't know. I haven't been keeping up with technology enough, but it's... It doesn't have to be technology. Is it the phone? Are we over the phone yet? <laughs> I don't think we're over the phone the yet. The phone as a phone, What's it going to happen to it? What's going to happen to it? Is, oh. it the, is it the cash card? What's going to go in the next five? Like a credit card? Yeah. I hope that those go. That whole fucking system is outrageous. Yeah. I like that. Okay. What is your favorite thing about yourself? Um, my favorite thing about myself. Um, I can edit. I can change. I can change. If I, I'm learning how to just be real nice to myself. If I make a mistake, not to see failure, but to see that everything in the past can um, just crystallize into wisdom and sit there. Um, I really love being on the journey and being able to change and update and edit my thinking and, and everything else that's what I like. I think that feeds into being able to take multiple perspectives too, because in our individualized culture, when you only take a single perspective and that single perspective is challenged, then it's like a personal challenge. That's something that you're then wrong. And that ownership that you take of those perspectives is damaging because it makes you brittle to shattering and then you have to defend it against everything. And that just creates this paradigm of it's too rigid. Yeah. You can't be wrong, and then you can't ever grow if you can't ever be wrong, because mistakes are where we learn. Yeah. Oh, you should. We interviewed my dad when we were in New Zealand, and we talked a lot about the beauty of failure. And I'm going to read a quote from from this podcast episode that my dad said. Yeah. He, he said, "The only people who don't make mistakes are the people who sit there too afraid to make mistakes. Mistakes are an absolute sign of progress. Embrace it. Get over it." With one of, one of the great lessons that I earn, learned early on from a mentor is that every obstacle contains its equivalent opportunity. So once you understand that fully, what you really want is as many obstacles to fall on your path as you can possibly get as quickly as you can get them. So you are moving qu- as quickly as you can towards progress. Check yeah. out episode with Jen's dad. <laughs> well uh, said. Yeah, yeah. I'd be careful with that as well. I mean, I used to, um, used to say, oh, look, if I'm ever going to make a mistake, in my life, let it be a big public mistake so that um, my ego can be deflated. I used to pray that when I was younger. And um, yeah, that one good answer too. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? But if you ask for hardship and if you ask for difficulty, then it will surely come to you. Absolutely. So maybe be kind to yourself and ask for... Nice things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I used to... What's that one I've heard people say that... Um, let the lessons that come to me, um, you know, be positive experiences and enjoyable. Yeah, that's a that's a good twist. I should uh, keep that in mind. I know when I moved to Philadelphia, I was I was really asking to learn how to recognize manipulation because it was something that I was really right. bad at recognizing, right. and then. I promptly became best friends with a cult leader witch hunter and uh, didn't didn't see that for a while. And my mom was like, you came here asking for this. Obviously, she was going to be your best friend. She was the one to teach you that lesson extremely. Yeah. Yes. But it was not very pleasant. It, it had some nice aspects. But. I'm trying to set an intention now to enjoy everything. Be joyful always, even in adversity, you know? 
But that's saying you have prepared a banquet for me in the presence of my enemies is an old scripture, which means it's an it's a framing that says even when everything's going really bad and people have definitely got it in for me, then I'm going to look for the silver lining in that. I'm mm-hmm. going to look for the good thing, the Easter egg that's hiding in there and just enjoy and know that I'm going to come through better and stronger. Totally. You know? We only get things in life that we can handle, you know. Gratitude is essential to enjoying life. Yeah, it's that. What is your favorite thing about yourself? What is your least favorite thing about being a parent? My least favorite thing about being a parent is that when I um, look at when I look back through my memories at, um, you know, we're always evolving and we can look back at a time when we were less well-developed and then we can see the impact of those times in our children, times where I've been, you know, grumpy or um, moody or something and it's um, caused distance between me and my child and then seeing how that's impacted their development later on and, um, that's that's my least favorite thing. Yeah, that's hard. Knowing that you might have damaged someone or not been the perfect parent. Well, yeah, <laughs> you can usually make up for things, though. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's that's kind of terrible. <laughs> <laughs> what is your most embarrassing story from before puberty, childhood? Um, Your kids really liked that I was going to ask you this question. My most embarrassing. Okay. Um, um, I just guess, I guess a real classic one of being, being at school and not getting to the bathroom and just losing bowel control and crapping my pants and having to get a taxi come pick me up and a taxi? everyone in the school knows my mum didn't have a car she had to send oh. the taxi mm. taxi would have charged a soiling fee and given me the evils for smelling bad and, oh. and then everybody knowing oh. that was probably my worst that was pretty embarrassing I guess I don't know if I could go further than that I think that's a very fair answer yeah. I, I yeah. 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 always a fun question it's always I would have been about, let me see, I would have been in, um, I would have been like in standard one, so four, five, I would have been six years old, I think. Yeah, so I've been that shame. Aww. <laughs> yeah. What is the book that has most influenced your life? Oh, wow. I've just been reading a bunch of great books. I've been Autobiography of a Yogi and um, Untethered Soul. And um, Dr. Joe Dispenza, You Are the Placebo. That one's influenced me the most this year, probably. Um, I want to read that one. Yeah, well recommended. Um, yeah, I don't know. I read a lot of, I mean, I've read the Bible a few times and that. Or I liked John a lot, you know. 
and the beginning was the Logos, and then the Logos. Anyway, we'll skip over that. That might freak people out. I think I, I enjoyed um, Pilgrim's Progress. When I was a kid, I saw it in the library, and I somehow grabbed it and read it, and it was this prophetic kind of a tale, and it felt, when reading it, that it wasn't a normal book. You could tell that it was it was about something bigger, and it was opening the imagination and connecting the imagination to a whole other spiritual world of of parallel dimensions that seem to be connected to and just reading this reading books like that just really opened my mind right up and then as a as a child i read dr lyle watson's supernature which just laid out an argument for all the other stuff science was glossing over around psychic abilities and you know what yogis could do and referenced all the scientific articles that it was based on so as a quite a young child reading a book like that and then learning how to go to the references and go to the library and look up the papers and do that kind of stuff. That was quite influential because it also changed my worldview and gave me um, ability to perceive that, you know, there was a another realm out there, whatever you want to call it, where you can sort of see through time or whatever. That's going to sound too freaky talking about that. No, it? man. We like to freak people out on this podcast as often as possible. So Yeah, that's cool. That's <laughs> nice. Nice, nice, nice. What life practices do you do to keep yourself sane and balanced? Um, I do practice um, meditation. I did a Vipassana here in Thailand, which was amazing. And so I practice meditation. I... I um, send out intentions and kind of intercede and connect for my children, my family to just bring healing and light and so on. Um, what else do I, what other practices? I should do more yoga to keep my body a little bit more bendy, but um, uh, yeah, I should have started that in my 30s or 20s. Maybe. Never too late. Yeah. You should come up to Pi where we, uh, we, we've, done a kung fu retreat camp there and it's really incredible i think it's a it's a it's a really fun way to get into sort of like the elements of yoga mm. um you do qigong and meditation and then like cool stretching that feels like you're becoming a warrior yeah <laughs> yeah yeah qigong's cool yeah i like so i like yoga meditation and yeah reflective kind of prayer connecting seeing hearing and extending belief and putting strong intention behind specific beliefs to manifest things i guess yeah i do those things and writing music yeah fuck yeah yeah i think singing's the main thing that keeps me sane whenever i started to go insane i sing yeah. it away yeah and go to the i go to the gym as well if something's really 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 difficult is happening in my life then I'll go to the gym and do my cardio and work out and um, that to cause that natural release of endorphins yeah. and echephalins and that that normally you'd get just from taking drugs. That is very wise and advanced of you. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Very good answers. What is the most environmentally friendly thing that you do or want others to do? I'm going to just append my last one by saying spending quality personal time with my wife and my children keeps me sane. Mm. Yeah. As well. Very good. Um, mm -hmm. What is the most environmental 
environmentally sensitive thing, would you say? Yeah, that you do and or you wish others would do. Um, I import breathing masks Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) to Thailand with the intention being that if this turns into a profitable business, we can give breathing masks to people here um, who can't afford them to help them survive the pollution. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm much more keyed into getting my recycling together and trying to recycle boxes and plastic or whatever but um, living in thailand it's tough i mean you get you get a bag with a bag with a bag <laughs> like why is there so much plastic yeah and the masks are no pursuit especially if you've lived through smoky season i understand it yeah yeah that's right burn away we call it Try to raise awareness of the pollution level. I like that name. We'll definitely link uh, Facebook. Is that where mainly it's? Yeah, burnaware right is a dot net. Burnaware dot net. It's where people okay. can buy masks from. That's where the dot net yes. came from. And we were doing steampunk goggles as well. We had a steampunk clothing range, so we had goggles and Nerf guns and costumes and stuff. There's a lot of people like the goggles, and that's kind of burnaware as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Uh, why do people do small talk? Um, I guess small talk fits in the air more easily than big talk. Fits in the air? In the ear, E-A-R. Ear? Slides into the ear more easily. <laughs> and there's like a, I think there's a, it's like before jousting with somebody, um, you know, you make a few sort of false moves just to sort of test and see where the reactions are at. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we're just. Oh, I like that. Yeah, analogy. That's, that's, that's an interesting take on it. I like that. That's yeah. very fair. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Occasionally. Occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we end every podcast. Yes. So you're just going to edit edit these things down and find the bits that are interesting and just drop out. It's all interesting. What are you talking about? You're, you are incredibly interesting. We could talk to you for, we could, I don't know, 20 hours nonstop, yeah. I think, and still be left wanting more, but then just fall asleep. <laughs> then you'd have to edit it all, though, right? We, someone else did it like a four-hour interview once. I'm like, you have to edit this shit, man. You know? <laughs> so far, I put out, I've, I put out a two-hour, 15-minute and a two-hour and 35-minute interview and they, wow, and well, and an hour and a half, and two, one hour. Anyway, but no, I mean we've been. Uh, I I listened to the like three hour long Joe Rogan. This guy just came in and said he was listening to Joe Rogan right now. Yeah. He's usually around three hours, and Dak Shepard, armchair expert, is one of our other favorites, and he's also often two to three hours. I just That's one of like, the cool things about podcasts is it doesn't need to fit into thirty minute, fifteen minute, hour long blocks. You can get a more a more dynamic view of the subject, the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, get it deep. Kind of, you've got a story, you've got some more ideas. We haven't really talked about drugs, but that's okay. We haven't really talked about drugs? Not in any. So. I, I would have had more some interesting questions, but I think I like I like where it went naturally much better than yeah, cool. where that might have taken us. Um, trying to, yeah, I try to just bang the story stuff out and some of the other. There's a lot of people who can talk about drugs. Yeah. What is your favorite chemical that 
to put inside of you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know for a while I really liked MDMA, but um, it's not my favorite thing to put inside of me. My body kind of doesn't like it. What does your body say? Um, it's it's yuck. It you know it gets you too hot, and it's not quite designed right. MDMA is like when you come home to your um come home to your house and you're drunk and you try to put the light switch on but you're drunk and you hit too many switches at once and uh. maybe the hairdryer comes on uh-huh. a whole lot of other stuff you know it's not selective enough i don't think um, it's not amazing it's receptor sites that's like that's a universal thing that it makes you warm is that what you say as well i just think it's it's um it could be improved on it could be improved on so i didn't you know mess you up so much make you feel so sick make you so confused even methylone, we made a product with methylone, just one simple modification, and it became more of a serotonin-releasing agent mm-hmm. and was less of that dopaminergic um, mm-hmm. effect. And so it wasn't confusing. We did a clinical trial, like a 1,000 people, and a lot of people said they preferred this pill to MDMA because wow. one comment was you don't go making promises to complete strangers you just met to run down the road and get them a packet of cigarettes or something. <laughs> and so other people saying, you know, you get home with someone and you don't accidentally, you know, go with someone that's not your gender preference or whatever, you know, or you don't accidentally, and particularly for a woman dealing with unwanted sexual attention as well. Um, someone says, come home with me. Often on MDMA, you're just really suggestive. You're like, yeah, sure. And you can end up in a bad situation, whereas with something a little bit more selective, it's like, no, I don't want to go home with you. What are you talking about? That interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. So that made it select less of the dopamine and more of the serotonin receptors? Less confusion, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's still got that Shakespearean kind of love spell where the first person that you lay eyes on, you're completely in love with. But... Your normal sense of reason is not diminished, you know. I would say it's possible that the best drugs haven't been invented yet. Yeah, I think that's very Yeah. I mean, we sort of just stumbled on the ones that we know now, like, haphazardly and just been like, wow, this is... That's it. That's exactly it. And this is what we've been saying in terms of um, dealing with drug policy is that a lot of the problems with our drugs are just technology problems in that... They've they've been invented by accident. Yeah, you know, I mean, Hoffman said he, when he, as a child he wanted to um, create things which would give people the same euphoric experience of nature that he had, but he wasn't looking to create a psychedelic when he made LSD. He was looking for was it a blood pressure med or something? And yeah, same with, something totally unrelated. Yeah, and MDMA, even amphetamine, all these things they're, they're not really being developed as party drugs. Right. So. Why don't we just develop party drugs. some party drugs, <laughs> right? Instead, seems very reasonable. A lot of the stuff that comes out of nature is really good, you know. Obviously, you have mushrooms and um, cacti. And a lot of people seem to like cannabis, don't they? Yeah. yeah my favorite. I like psychedelics. My favorite things to put in my body are the least toxic, which are generally the psychedelics, and. You see, you kind of moderate dose. It's not way over the top. And, um, yeah, not so much for parties, but for really thinking about things. But what I try to do is to get to that point without, you know, without taking anything now. That's really where I want to be at. 
And are you promoting that to other people or like, I mean, having discussions, not necessarily as a public figure, but like, is that a conversational topic that you are intentionally engaging in now? Yeah. Yeah. I try to encourage people just to, um, yeah, not to be stuck on the path of just the psychonaut path. Cause I come across a lot of psychonauts, right. And they just want to take this drug and this drug and this drug and this drug to try to find their answers. But mm-hmm. even McKenna said with DMT, asking the question, the answer came back as this is not a way to get your answers. You know what I mean? Is that McKenna? I think so. But, and that's my thing as well is that, you know, drugs aren't really the answer, I don't think. Yeah. Mm. Make exploring the question a lot more fun in certain <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. As long as but, that's what we know, that's what we're doing. We're doing yeah. this for fun, really. You know? Yeah. 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 I think that, that I've seen a lot of people like in the psychonaut community that just kind of go a little bit. Well, I'm never thinking about ketamine. Ketamine is a useful tool. Ketamine is a lot of fun, yeah. Like, but you can go pretty pretty down into that. We're lucky in, uh, enough to have um, Dennis McKenna and Mitch Schultz come down. Sorry, Mitch Schultz. How do you say your name? Sorry, Mitch. Came down to New Zealand and we um, hooked them up with some professors of philosophy and so on at the university and got them discussing. And it was interesting to hear that uh, for instance, the human experience is so varied. Everybody has a different perspective. Like right now I'm sitting, I'm looking out the window. You're not looking out the window, you're looking at me and you can see the wall behind. We've got different perspectives, okay? But with um, DMT, people often have the same experience. And so if you were asked the question as to what is reality, uh, this experience that we're in now, which we're all seeing differently, it's not consistent, whereas the DMT experience, we're all seeing the same thing due to the consistency of witness. That must be reality. That must be more real than this, you know. That was an interesting so discussion. Unplugging the other... from the matrix, perhaps? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unplugging from the matrix from this holographic projection or whatever the hell we're in, you know, whatever you want to call it. The other thing was that with um, DMT that people were able to perceive three-dimensional space, four-dimensional, five, six-dimensional. Normally, the philosophy guys were saying it takes years to be able to get to that point, whereas with DMT, you get there in 20 minutes. I'm not saying drugs are bad or useless or anything. I mean, obviously, they're great tools, um, but, you know, it's like a, if you've got an electric screwdriver, I mean, use that for putting screws in and out with, mm-hmm. don't stick it in your head. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, yeah. 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 Use it for the purpose. Amen. <laughs> Solid note to end on. All right. Thank well, you so much. This, yeah, has, this been, has been a dream come true. Yeah. Yeah. It was really exciting for us. That's Thank cool. you for taking the time and hope we didn't take too much of it. No, no. <laughs> All right. Travis, say your super cool sign off that you totally have come up with since last time. <laughs> Zip it up and zip it out. Do you have a, do you have an idea for a super cool sign off? Yeah, we haven't a super cool sign off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Over and out. <laughs> we need your rock star uh, um, insight. I don't know. I don't know. Is there anything else that I want to say or talk about? Mm-hmm. The other statement you might want to slot in anywhere is that um, you know, I mean, I I dealt with. Um, trying to get governments to do the right thing and fail to realize that there is kind of sold out. Governments are bankrupt and they're owned by corporations. And so that's not the way forward. The way forward 
has to be that because when we tried with governments to get them to do the responsible thing and put regulations in place, if they're not doing it, then how do we how do we regulate the market ourselves? And I think the way that we do that is industry needs to work together to develop um, safety protocols and standards and use blockchain. So what I see happening next is that people are producing new drugs. Um, using the funds that they develop from those new drugs to fund toxicity testing, publishing the toxicity testing so that consumers can see each drug, what the safety level is and what the relative risks are. And then governments are then forced to either adopt those uh, standards and promote the safer ones and um, ban the less safe ones or just fall behind and become irrelevant. And that's where I think we're going next. The first time that I heard about Bitcoin or blockchain was in reference to a site called uh, Silk Road, I don't know if you're familiar, yeah. where they yep. used Bitcoin to purchase illicit anything, really. Unfortunately, yeah. it was also coincided with a bunch of other illicit uh, activities and things. But um, I saw it there that you could purchase, you, the, the people you were purchasing it from were able, able to be reviewed. Which I had never actually made it onto the website, but from what from what I've heard is you could you could review the person that you bought it from. So after you get whatever it is that you're purchasing, you can send them a five star, three star. So you could see what other people's experience were like with what you would hopefully then be purchasing, which added this sort of um, quality control. Yes, and I thought that was that was I, was, I, I said and this was this was in like 2008 or something like that, and I was like, shit, I really want to buy some bitcoins. Boy, do I wish I bought some bitcoins then. Yeah. But I think I think that, that it's interesting again that there's blockchain, bitcoin, all those kind of things feed into this conversation about where the future might be headed. I think where it's going to go is instead of relying on governments centrally to develop standards, industry will develop standards um, by allowing consumers to choose high quality or low quality and that will happen on that will happen on blockchain and don't you think like that's something that the conservative right who doesn't like big government should full heartedly support <laughs> i think it's just going to happen yeah, it's just evolution it's, that's yeah. where the technology is going to go and so what were used to be the function of government is just going to be the function of ai moving forwards because governments have not taken their responsibility seriously well they couldn't because they couldn't afford to so that's what's happening next. Sorry, just slot that into the other. Point. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Very well said. Uh, where can where do you want people to find you? Music, otherwise, anything, social media, websites, etc. Um, if you're interested in progressive rock, then check out my starboy.tv or to follow what we're doing now, or you want to see one of our shows at a festival, or you've got a festival you want to play us play at labyrinthcircus.com or if you want to contact me just go to mattbowden.com and that will take you to my Facebook